pill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? What's going on in the world today? And come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet Radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. Okay, I am having technical difficulties today. I apologize. My co-host is not with me, so things are messed up today. So let's see if we can get this going. And come on. When an emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com. Or call 888-441. 7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself and then rest easy 
So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewith7cents.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. All right, and welcome back to another exciting adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up in iTunes, Stitcher, Streaker, Spreaker, whatever the heck it is, including WCET Radio out of Columbia, South Carolina. I am your hostess with the least mostest today, Annie, the Radio Chickadee. Uh, Curtis is going to be a little bit late. He was doing a book signing or something or other, uh, but I'm going to be winging and songing and dancing by myself for a little bit of a while. I want to welcome everyone that is listening in over on Facebook Live, as well as here in the chat room on Blog Talk Radio, as well as all of our other locations. Um, we've got a lot to talk about today. We've got a bunch of fantastic guests. Get the teeth in straight. See, I can't even talk today. <laughs> fantastic guests here. Um, we're going to start off the show with Catherine Gorka. Last name sound familiar? Gorka? Uh, Yes, she is the spouse to Sebastian Gorka, a lady in her own right and might. She is with the Heritage Foundation. She'll be joining us at the start of the show. And then we're going to have Dr. Ken Hansen. He's got a book out there um, talking about uh, the clash between Palestinians and Israelites. Uh, His book is called Whose Holy Land? Um, he's, it's a fantastic book and it lays out the, the arguments on both sides and guess where we end up. Oh man. Uh, we end up with the Abraham peace accords. Uh, we're going to then finish the show with uh, two wonderful women, uh, Trudy Strobel. Uh, Trudy happens to be a Holocaust survivor firsthand. Uh, one of the few remaining ones alive. Uh, She has a very interesting way in which she was finally able to tell her story, and it was told with the help of a Hollywood maven, uh, Judy Sabin. Uh, She is a playwright, an author, uh, a producer. Uh, She has helped to put Trudy's uh, Strobel's story into words and pictures in a book that is absolutely fantastic called Stitched and Sewn. Life-saving art of Holocaust survivor Trudy Strobel. So we've got ourselves a fantastic show. Uh, because of the change in our scheduling, we're going to do our dedication towards the end of the show. Uh, so I want to welcome again everyone that is listening in, whether or not you are in our studio, who I see a good friend of ours over in New Mexico, sweet Sue. Um, want to say hi to you, say hi to our friends that are popping up in the uh, chat room here on Blog Talk Radio, as well as those that are showing up here in um, Facebook Live. Uh, I am stuttering, I am talking upside down and backwards, but (laughs) see what happens when you leave me alone and I don't have my uh, normal co-host and everything in its usual order today, so we're a little bit of a bass-ackwards. Oh, man. Uh, One of the things that when... um, Catherine uh, Gorka does call in. We're going to be discussing these riotings that have been going on across our nation with the Black Lives Matter movement. And unfortunately, I didn't open up my shades, so that's why I'm looking in the dark. We have before us 
Catherine Herridge, who used to be with Fox News, is now with uh, PBS and ABC. She has a great um, article she wrote, and she got a hold of a interagency memo uh, going between the Department of Homeland Security and other agencies, where they actually show a proof in fact that these Black Lives Matter, the Antifa, whatever you want to call these riots, have been carefully orchestrated. That said, I do believe this is our guest in in the studio, so please bear with me as I am missing my co-host. Welcome to Southern Censor on the air live with Annie, the radio chick. To whom am I speaking? Is this Catherine Gorka? Yes, it is. All right, I got to apologize. My co-host sent me a last-minute email as I was getting ready to go on air. He's in the middle of doing a book signing. He's going to go, oops, I'm going to be late, so I'll no keep cooking bottle washer right now. You know how okay. that goes. Yeah. I have to do it on fly. We'll make it work. <laughs> we always do. We always do. So I sat a little bored. I probably am. Uh, you are, have sent to us courtesy of the Heritage Foundation, and um, – I have been a great admirer of your husband for a number of years, and you now have a fan in me. Uh, oh, thank because, you. You know, you sit quietly in the sidelines, but I'd love to be a fly on your household wall with your husband, Sebastian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's going to be some really lovely conversations out there. Uh, you yourself are, are a, a giant in your own fields of homeland security, uh, national security, um, you name it, and you're also chief bottle washer. But you wrote an absolutely wonderful article that was up on in the Federalist, uh, comparing the riots that we saw in the '60s and early '70s to what is going on today. And you know, I actually had linked them together a number of years ago, saying this sounds too familiar, having grown up in the '60s. And you just you just nailed it right on the head. That's so interesting that you say that, but I, you know, because I grew up in the '60s as well. But I really didn't know about the work that was being done by Students for a Democratic Society before the riots in the prep work for the riots. So when I wrote about that, had you heard that before, or was that news to you as well? No, um, with the rise of the Red Brigade, uh, the Underground Weathermen. Um, the Black Panthers, you know, there was always a common theme and a connection between all of them. Uh, And the media did at times report it, but they never made the final leap that you have done in your article. Yeah. So, and, and I, and I have to say, like, I can't take credit for it. I mean, the, you know, my article was based on this extraordinary book um, by a journalist named Eugene Methvin, who wrote for Reader's Digest. He is the one that did all the research and, and pulled it all together in his incredible book called The Riot Makers. But I think that it never, you know, his book came out in 1970. I don't know how it was received, but by that time, the Kerner Commission report on the riots had already been issued, where they simply called it uh, you know, it was a result. It was righteous protest, right? Um, but Eugene Methvin is the one that uncovered all this, and I think he needs to be rediscovered. You know, frankly, for our day and age, because what he found was incredible. It is. It is so very, very true. Um, they are highly orchestrated. Uh, there is a direct link to the Socialist Party, the Communist Party. It used to be. It used to be um, 
in the 70s, 80s, and then into the start of the 90s, if you had openly said you were a communist, you know, that was the end of your political career, your acting career, whatever. You were done. Put a fork in it. It's over. But somehow or other, if you notice in Congress, there was the growth of the Communist Party, and they openly acknowledged themselves in Congress by forming their own caucus. And it's been done very quietly. No one says anything about it. But now they're openly out there avowed, a.k.a. Bernie Sanders. Yeah, but did they self-identify as communist or socialist? I thought they more socialist. I mean, and the other the other label that seems to have like become hip is Marxist. You know, I mean, the three co-founders of Black Lives Matter seem to be proud of the fact that they're, quote, trained Marxists. That is amazing. And when you look at your their website, which everyone is now finally starting to acknowledge, everything that is good and moral is destroyed. Supporting the family, working hard, um, earning an honest, decent paycheck. The very basic things are a moral fabric that makes us what we are so wonderful and great is torn apart. Yeah, and it's it's sad because actually it really to me it really harkens back to the French Revolution. Um when when you look back at that time, um I think a lot of what we're doing now is what we were doing then and and I think people don't realize that the work of Black Lives Matter and and these so-called Marxists, they are paving the way to tyranny. And people need to wake up to that. And this is this this is to me the the really grave error in in the fact that we don't teach history anymore is that people don't know we've been down this road before and people don't know what this leads to and so they they cheer them on i mean it it blows my mind that black lives matter even though their support is down but they still have supposedly 55 percent of american people still support black lives matter i think the majority of those 55 people have no idea what they're supporting they absolutely do not. Um, I had a, a my neighbor across the street uh, came out and she wanted to do this thing with police reform, and of course she's got <laughs> she's got an open communist running for Congress in our congressional district. She's got his sign on the front yard. I don't know how much she's going to be supporting him since they just had an article on a newspaper about him being an anti-Semite and a bigot and <laughs> homophobe, everything they call us. Um, but she was talking to me about white privilege. Now, you've got a white woman talking to another white woman about how I have white privilege. And, and this is the whole idea. You know, you create a class of people and you, you put a label on them that all of a sudden they're apologizing for. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, I was born white. So, um, therefore, I have been oppressing you simply because of my birth. Um, I don't know, Catherine, did you turn around when you were getting ready to be born, knock on God's door and say, oh, please, 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 let me be born to this couple and not that black couple or Asian couple or Hispanic or Native? Did you ask ask him? (laughs) No, I know. The the whole conversation around privilege is is really problematic. You know, I just today read something that, that finally said something that that really struck home for me about the the white privilege thing because this, this is a guy named Adam Seagrave, who's based at uh, Arizona State University, and he's been engaged in a really interesting project for the past three years called called Race and the American Story. 
So he's actually someone who loves the Constitution, studies the Constitution, but works with um, a woman who's head of a black studies program. And they have found a way to talk about race without tearing down the Constitution. And he said something really interesting. He said, it's not helpful or constructive to talk about white privilege, because the second you say that, it puts people's backs up, right? And it's like saying, your experience doesn't matter. He said, rather than talk about white privilege, talk about what we can do to help lift blacks up, right? Our lives are not a result of privilege. We've all worked hard. We've all suffered. We've all done things to get to where we are today, right? Um, But that doesn't mean that there aren't things we can do to help lift up blacks who maybe have not had benefited the opportunities we have. I, I liked that, you know. I'm I'm willing to have that conversation. I just, you know, I know how I feel when somebody says white privilege. It just shuts me down. That's the first thing. That, that That's the whole point, though. If they do shut you down, they shut you up. And then we're not talking about pure substance. We're talking about now raw emotion. And the best way to shut you up is try to make you feel guilty. Now, I know I have nothing to be guilty about. Because as I had my conversation with my neighbor, I said, listen, you can say that, yeah, blacks have been disadvantaged. I will agree with that. Fine. But we've reached a point in our society where we have so much more unity than we have had even 20 years ago. You see the intermixing of races. You see interracial couples where it used to be a rarity. Now it's no one bats an eyelash anymore. You know, we have come together economically and socially. You see more black millionaires than you have ever seen before. And a lot of them just make it off of being a sports figure. I have to show up just a couple of games a year and they make millions of dollars. You know, we have risen so much as a society and nation, and we should be talking about how we can further this and make us one people, the human race, no longer a division between this group and that group, become what our founders intended, the unhyphenated American, as my friend Lloyd Marcus loved to say, God rest his soul. Uh, But that's not the conversation we're having, Catherine. You and I are having it, but we've got to hear it from other sides, too, don't we? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, I think to some extent it's going on. I think there are some amazing initiatives out there. Uh, I love the project being run by Bob Woodson called 1776 Unites. Um, That was a direct response to the New York Times 1619 project. And the good news is they've just come out with their own curriculum, which I think is great. Um, But the problem is, you know, the problem is you've got things like the teachers unions who are fully on board with the leftist agenda, right? If you look at the the National Education Association, which is one of the biggest teachers unions, they've got a whole page called a whole section of their website called Ed Justice. They've got a whole page of Black Lives Matter resource materials. Um, You know, parents need to push back against that. I don't know if you saw it the other night, but Tucker Carlson had a woman on from from Lower Marion Township in Philadelphia, and she was so fed up with what she saw that she started a new organization called No Left Turn in Education. That's what we need more of. I love that. I love that people are waking up to the content their kids are being taught. They realize there's a link between what our kids are being taught and the protests we're seeing in the streets. You can't teach anti-American content for decades and not think that you're going to raise generations of kids to hate America. 
And I think that's what this summer has been a great awakening with that regard. But parents need to step up now. Parents need to look at the content that's in their school, kids' schools, and they need to start to stand up to it, even if it's painful. You know, this woman described, like, being really hounded by some of the other parents for what she did. Um, but she stood up for her beliefs, and I think that's what we all need to be doing right now. You know, I, I saw that segment, and God bless her, because she is an immigrant, a legal immigrant. And she truly understands what it means to be here in these United States, a nation that the world has never seen before, freedoms and liberties that have never been exercised as we exercise them here. And she knows what is at stake. She knows where she came from, which makes what she does so much more poignant. in, in In a way, this COVID pandemic, this isolation we have put ourselves in, has actually, I think, awakened a fabric of our society because parents finally are seeing what their kids are struggling through in schools, what they're being taught. You have, um, was it in Missouri? Uh, There was some backwards uh, school district that was teaching, and it was a very affluent school district. You probably know the name of the school better than I would, um, that was teaching that if your mommy or daddy was a cop, then they're a racist, they're a bigot, they're this, they're that. Um, how dare they? And if you happen to be born white, you should apologize to all the other students. If this, the, the very idea of this being taught to kids that a child is so, I'm trying to think of the proper word, they're like a sponge. You've got a dry sponge, you throw the water on it, it's going to absorb it and hold it within itself. Uh, that's what a child's brain is like. And you, you fill it with these things at such a formidable age. What is the end result? You see the kids that we now raise as young adults rioting in the streets. Yeah, I mean, that. you know, one of the really eye-opening things for me about Eugene Methvin's book about the riots in the 60s was the degree to which um, stoking anti-police emotions was a big part of the strategy of these young Marxist students who were trying to bring about a revolution. Um, and I think we're seeing the same thing again. I think this is I think this is something that's being manipulated. I think that the people who a lot of the people who are organizing the protests who are who are manufacturing this are um, deliberately stoking this this anti-police um, sentiment. And it's going to be really, really dangerous in the long run because we are going to lose hold of the rule of law, and that's going to lead to chaos and civil war. And people need to wake up to that. And I think that's why it's really interesting. You know, there's a whole counter movement to to back the blue. But what that really says is it's not just about the police. It's also people saying we recognize how important the rule of law is, and it's central to – the American Republic, and we—if we lose that, we are in big trouble. Absolutely, and yet we do find, as you write in your article, this is highly orchestrated. It is not spontaneous, and as Bill Barr has rightly said, as I saw in today's articles, that he has been calling the attorney generals across the nation and saying, "Listen, let's track down the." the uh, leaders of this organization because they're showing up the same faces, LA, New York, Detroit, Minneapolis, the same exact faces. And we said this when it was back with the Occupy movement 
you know, they, they, they post on their Facebook, Instagram, or what, Snapchat, whatever. They post where they're at. And, of course, hello, <laughs> how brilliant these people are is that they get uh, stamped as to their location and their IP address and what device they're using. Like, <laughs> we're not going to know it's the same person showing up over and over again. Uh, and, who's, and you write rightly so in your article. Who's paying for the hotel rooms, the airplane rides, the bus tickets? Who's paying these people? Right. <clears throat> no, I know. And that, and I think that's why, you know, starting to really get serious about these investigations is super, super important. Got to be, it's got to kind of happen at, at different levels. So, you know, the FBI is going to be in charge of some of it, right? They're going to carry out their investigations, but that's not enough. I think it's really important that Congress starts to hold hearings on this because they can bring experts to the table. And I also think it's important that, that, that the media step in. And to be fair, I think there are some people that have done an incredible job. Um, Chris Rufo has been doing just great, great work. Um, Andy Ngo, the journalist um, who was beaten up in, in, I think, Seattle or Portland, um, has been doing great work. Uh, this, is a, it's, this is a tough issue. And one of the things, and you know, we haven't really heard much talk about this, but part of what makes this really difficult is um, what happened after the riots of the 60s the FBI and the CIA together, abuses were committed in terms of them investigating and looking at Americans and looking at what was going on. And so you had then the Church Commission, which investigated those abuses, and then they put a lot of restrictions on what can be done in terms of tracking American groups, right? And so this is why, you know, I think a lot of people assume, oh, DHS must know all about Antifa or Black Lives Matter. No, they don't. They are not allowed to keep that information. I worked at DHS under this administration. This was a big topic of conversation. You cannot keep files on groups just because they believe in something that makes you uncomfortable, right? There's a very big difference between groups that, you know, believe, you know, say that they advocate for certain things or whatever, but unless they cross the line and break the law, um, there are very strong restrictions on what Department of Homeland Security is able to do. I think now, following the summer, there were enough laws broken. Um, FBI clearly has grounds for investigation, as well as do you know local municipalities. And I think those investigations are, are happening. But there's a lot of work to be done, and I think a lot of people need to step up uh, to really uncover what's going on. Oh, that's a huge amen. Your article was great. It was called How the 1960s Riots Foreshadowed Today's Communist Weaponization of Black Pain. Uh, people can find you at heritage.org. And where else can they find you, Catherine? Uh, I'm at Twitter at Gorka Katie, K-A-T-I-E. And um, that article it can be found at The Federalist as well. Well, God bless you for the hard work that you put into it, what you have done for our nation, along with your husband, too. The two of you are powerhouses. You have my greatest admiration. You know, I, I was reading the article, and when I got to the point where uh, Rand Paul and his wife got back to the hotel room and found that the same rioters were in the room next door to them, that scared the bejesus out of me. Uh, but we've got to be aware that this is the undercurrent that we are facing in our society, and we've got to be proactive on it. 
Yeah, 100%. I agree with you. And we all have to step up, and we have to stand up to the people that are trying to silence us. We cannot accept that. No, absolutely not. Matter of fact, I'm wearing my favorite T-shirt today that says, never underestimate a retired police officer. And I wore that when we had our rally. I was one of those that towed the thin blue line. So I know where you're coming from and what we face. God bless you. Oh, good for you. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great day, Catherine. We'll have you back again. There's so much more to talk to you about. I'm sorry we had just such a short time today. Great. No, I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Check her out, Catherine Gorka. Bye. Uh, Take care. Uh, She's over at thefederalist.com with her article, How the 1960s Riots Foreshadowed Today's Communist Weaponization of Black Pain, as well as find her over at heritage.org. And we've got our next victim up on our line. He's got a great book out there that's a real eye-opener. It's called Who's Holy Land? He is a professor he is a natural storyteller and he is one heck of an amusing individual let's welcome aboard ken hansen good afternoon mr hansen how are you doing doctor good afternoon to you i'm doing great on this eve of rosh hashanah the jewish new year i'm glad you mentioned that because i was going to tell you happy new year happy happy New Year! thank you very much Uh, thank you very much it's it is a new, hopefully, a much better new year than the one we've had. I guess uh, it actually started off this week with a monumentous event, uh, which went very quietly by mainstream media, and only a few stations carried it. The Abraham Accords—that is, is a phenomenal occurrence, and it has happened in our lifetime. Yeah, it is an absolutely phenomenal occurrence, something that I never imagined I would be seeing. Uh, I I lived in the state of Israel for several years. As a matter of fact, I I worked in a war zone in southern Lebanon during the Lebanese war, and uh, I I was up close and personal on on a number of occasions with the face of terrorism. And one of my friends, as a matter of fact, was murdered. Um, I I witnessed the aftermath of a, a horrific bombing that killed 13 young Israeli soldiers on a convoy into that war zone. Israelis live with war and the threat of war on a daily basis. And to imagine that two really important countries in the Arab world would come on board and say, you know, it's not land for peace that we're demanding. How about peace for peace? What an event. What an event. And, And you're right. It was barely covered by so much, so much of the mainstream media. You know, we've seen attempts at peace um, in the region time after time. Every single presidency, they make some sort of an attempt or overture. You saw it with Jimmy Carter. Uh, we saw the Oslo uh, Accords. Um, I, I probably can go back even further than that. Um, one after another, you saw George Bush attempting it. Uh, but we've never seen it to the point where you're right. We're not looking for land. We're looking for peace for peace. But there's an importance about the United Arab Emirates and Iran. They are the Switzerland of the Middle East. And if if you follow the money and you stabilize the money and the market, you actually are going to spread peace to the other adjoining countries, right? Exactly. And Israel has so much to offer. To the Middle East, and these Gulf Arab states know it. 
when I first went to Israel, it was quite some time ago. And really, it was a third world country by anybody's estimation. Uh, rickety old roads and the, it just had an aura about it that this is third world. You, you, could, you couldn't find a telephone, a private telephone. You had to get in a waiting line for one. Um, by the way, the country was socialist when it started. Think about that. Israel was a socialist state, and it looked at uh, and uh, forget about technology. Uh, very few people had TV sets, air conditioning, almost unheard of. But what happened over time was that Israel became a technological powerhouse. Uh, again, the Arab world knows this and needs Israeli technology. I was living there when all of this was developing, when, when the first walkie-talkies manufactured by Motorola began appearing in Israel, my television news crew that I was a part of were, were using them. And all of a sudden, we started seeing little changes in Israeli society, a, a move away from socialism. Uh, a fellow by the name of Benjamin Netanyahu was elected prime minister of Israel. And he had the amazing idea that we might just unleash good old free market capitalism in the modern state of Israel. And what a change it made. Israel today is one of the leading nations in the world in terms of high tech. Uh, they, they have factories that, that manufacture Intel chips in Haifa, in Jerusalem. You, you, you'll see ultra-Orthodox Jews in black coats and side curls working in computer labs, Literally, they call it Silicon Wadi. Heard of Silicon Valley? It's Silicon Wadi in, in the Middle East. Um, desalination. There are six desalination plants all up and down the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. They have pioneered drip irrigation, where all you need is a little pipe and it'll drip strategic drops of water right into the roots of the plants. Well, the one thing that the Middle East needs is water. The one thing these Gulf states need is water, desalination. The potential here for cooperation across the Middle East is, is enormous. And wouldn't it be great to supplant all the strife? And as President Trump called it, the, the sand is drenched with blood in the Middle East. To supplant all that with technological growth, industry, uh, prosperity uh, across the board, that is all possible. Growing up as a child of the 60s and 70s, you know, I, I was glued to the TV during the Seven-Day War. Um, a dear friend of mine in high school, I was unaware of it until one day she came to school and she had the Nazi tattoo on her wrist. She was a Holocaust survivor. Um, growing up and watching Israel grow, is like watching a child finally come to adulthood. And I had friends that every summer would go to Israel to work at a kibbutz. Um, what we've seen in its infant stage of the rebirth, not the birth of the nation, but the rebirth of the nation of Israel mm -hmm. is so wonderful. And you, you bring a lot of it to life, but you also go down to the nitty gritty to show how cultures have been clashing and how the claim of Israel by the Jewish people is more valid than any other person, uh, any other group of people in the world. It goes way back to the days of King David when it comes to the city of Jerusalem. 
And the proof is underground. There are really two Israels, as I like to say. There's the one that tourists see. Uh, I've, I've led many tours to the, the state of Israel, uh, and, of course, I've, I've lived there as well. But there's the, the lovely land of Israel that all the tourists are shown. That, that's the part above ground. But there's another part that's even more compelling that is underground. And that's where we find a whole cadre of facts. I call them the facts underground that tell of exactly who lived in this land not a century ago or two centuries or three or four not a thousand years ago, not two thousand years ago. We're talking three thousand years ago. Who inhabited this land? And it, 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 there's an amazing thing about the, the Jewish people. As a as a professor myself of uh, Jewish history and culture all through the ages, this is the only ancient book that has in fact survived intact with their ancient language their ancient tongue still still spoken just just think about that where are all of the other ancient peoples who inhabited this land in antiquity where are the philistines we've all heard of the philistines where are they today where are the phoenicians where are the hittites the there's a host of them the amalekites the the jebusites gone we, gone babylonians Canaanites, or we can go on and on and on about the number of different people. Even even the Egyptians. Are the Egyptians today the same people as the ancient Egyptians of the pharaohs? Not hardly. Where are the Romans today? Gone. This is what happens to human peoples. This is what happens to civilizations. They rise. They become dominant sometimes. Then they go into decline, decay, collapse, and they vanish. This is the only truly ancient people who have lived on, who have survived, who've been exiled from their land for two millennia and have come back again to resettle, to live there again. And all you have to do is look at the archaeology. That really is is what much of my book is about, the facts underground, the archaeology. It's all over this ancient land. This was a Jewish land that was conquered again and again and again, taken by other peoples, taken by various Arab tribes, taken by the Ottoman Empire. But whose land has this always been from the beginning? This is the land of the Jewish people. They've not claimed any other land. The Jews have not claimed Egypt. They haven't claimed <laughs> Syria. They've, they claim no other place but their ancient homeland. And they've always maintained a group of settlers who have never left, who have always lived, inhabited the city of Jerusalem in particular, places like Safed or Tzfat in the Galilee, to make sure that there's always been a Jewish presence in this land awaiting for the day when the, the state could be established again. It happened. It happened in 1948 when the, the British left the, the British mandate of Palestine. They called it in those days was dissolved. And the United Nations gave the Jews a state. 
you know, you said something really poignant because there's only one language that has ever survived a millennia uh, without being altered or bastardized. You think about ancient Greek, it's no longer the same. Uh, Latin is now Italian. Everything has morphed. Um, even the English language is a combination of several different languages, the root being Celtic, which was German. You know, even the German language has altered. Uh, but the only language to remain intact, read and written as it was in its original state, is Judaism, is Hebrew. 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 Think about that. Go back a few hundred years and what was English like? Go back a thousand years. Ever read Beowulf lately? <laughs> the original? What language <laughs> is this? It's English, believe it or not. It shouldn't look like it. Hebrew. It's the only language that literally died out as a spoken language. The Jewish people, as I mentioned, were conquered by the Romans, the Roman Empire, scattered into Babylonia and all parts of the compass to the four winds, as it were. And Hebrew was still used, but only as a liturgical language, only as a language for prayer. In prayer books, we were starting Rosh Hashanah this evening. Everybody will be praying Hebrew this evening and tomorrow, even though most will not understand what they're praying. That's what it was like for the Jewish people for 2,000 years until in the late 1800s, the late 19th century, one Jewish man, originally from Russia, moved to France, but his name was Eliezer Ben Yehuda. And he had a vision for reestablishing a Jewish culture in Palestine, as they called it in those days. But he knew that a new language, a common language, would be required and that people didn't know Hebrew anymore. And he said, how are we going to have our own culture, our own society, when we've got Jews who are moving in from Russia and from Europe and South America with no common language? We've got to reinvent Hebrew. He moved his family to Jerusalem. He was a frail, tubercular man, ill. His, his doctor said, you won't, you won't survive a year. But he did, and he, he came to Jerusalem with his family. They had a little child named Ben Sion, Ben Yehuda. By the way, I met Eliezer Ben Yehuda's granddaughter when I lived in Israel myself. But Ben Sion, the son, was the first modern human being ever to speak Hebrew as his mother tongue. Eliezer Ben Yehuda refused for any other language to be spoken at their home. We've got to teach him Hebrew. And he literally took an ancient biblical tongue and revived it, modernized it. It's the same language spoken in ancient times with a, a few a few alterations. I mean, you have to think of how are we going to say telephone, how are we going to say television, radio, things like that. But uh, how are we going to say ice cream? And he, he would take an ancient Hebrew root, play with it a little, and he got a new word, glida, which is ice cream. And if he didn't know what it was, he would just show it to his little boy and say, what it, maze, what is this? And whatever the boy said, that's what it became. And against <laughs> all odds and against, against persecution from his own people who said, you're bastardizing the holy tongue, he revived a dead language. 
and it became the, the language of the modern state of Israel. I, I'm surprised how many people don't even know that modern Hebrew is the, is the language of Israel and that it has not changed substantially in 2,000 years. When I, when I lived in Israel, I decided to, to take a language course for new immigrants coming into the country from all over the world. Uh, I sat in a class with Russian Jews and Iranian Jews who had gotten out. We talk about Iran these days. They were persecuted in Iran. Uh, after the uh, radical Ayatollahs took power and and fled to Israel. I I was in class with them. We had no common language. And so uh, every day, five hours a day, from the very first Shalom, it was nothing but solid Hebrew. And within within several months, they make you fluent. And so I learned Hebrew. And from that, I was able now to go back into ancient texts, pick up the ancient Bible, the Hebrew of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which I've written a whole book on, and cuddle up with it like a newspaper. That's the amazing thing. We've got this archaeological heritage. We've got the linguistic heritage. Uh, if you're living in Israel, Jews who live in Israel today, even if they're secular, even if they're not religious, they know they are living on top of the Bible, and there is a link to this ancient land that, that is beyond description, and they're not giving it up. You know, it's it's an amazing culture. And um, for a, a number of years, I had worked in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and every day encounters with the Hasidim. Um, and it, it, the stories I had from that time, it was amazing. But I had my grandmother, she turned around, and I'm half Italian, and she goes, Anuch, she goes, you and know the only difference between an Italian and a Jew and I said, no, Grandma, what? She goes, we put a tomato in our chicken or soup. <laughs> so she was basically <laughs> saying we have common heritage. And that is why I always wondered why there wasn't a better, closer working relationship between Jews and Christians. Well, there's a, a long and sad legacy, uh, I'm afraid, when it comes to uh, Christians and Jews. And that goes back to the Roman Empire also when Rome became a Christian empire uh, then it was very important for the Roman emperors the, the later emperors following Constantine to ensure that only Christianity would prevail in the Roman Empire and here were the Jews in large numbers in fact at one time one tenth of the whole Roman Empire was Jewish That's phenomenal. But slowly they were strangled out. They were persecuted. And there is a long legacy across Christian Europe. Christians are not aware of of what went on for so many centuries. And it is so sad that the black death, the bubonic plague was blamed on Jews all across Europe. Jews were rounded up, tortured, burned at the stake by their thousands blamed for poisoning the water wells to bring on the bubonic plague. That was the ignorance. Uh, the expulsion from Spain was also horrific. We've heard of the Spanish Inquisition. That was aimed against the Jews of Spain. And in 1492, the, the same year that, that Columbus was setting sail, there was a much larger fleet of ships laden with Jews leaving Spain. They were literally kicked out of Spain, lock, stock, and barrel, and had to find other places to live. Settled across North Africa, 
and parts east in the Arab world in those days and continued to live in the Arab world for centuries and actually did quite well among the Arabs. We're, we're talking about the, the peace with the, uh, with the UAE and Bahrain. Uh, in fact, Jews and Arabs have a lot in common and lived peacefully together for centuries. They were kicked out of Christian Spain. They had to live among the Arabs, the Muslims, who, who allowed them to practice their faith freely. Yes, they were second-class citizens, but at least they were allowed to live and to live in peace and to, to, arise, to rise to high positions in government. But something happened, as we mentioned, in 1948 when the state of Israel was declared. The Arab nations decided, um, you have your own nation now? Why don't you go there? Get out. And people are not aware that from 1948 through the 1950s, some 600,000 Jews from Arab states, from Morocco all the way to Oman and Yemen, Saudi Arabia, on and on, literally fled for their lives and had to be absorbed into the new Jewish state. And they came in their droves, Israel organized airlifts just to get them out. Uh, one they called Operation Magic Carpet. The Jews of Yemen uh, were being persecuted, fearing their lives, killed. And uh, Israel brought in great cargo planes and, and hustled them on board. Uh, these were ancient communities. They'd never even seen an airplane before. They were terrified. And uh, the rabbis held up the book of Isaiah and said, you see right here, it says, I will bear you on eagles' wings. And that's how they persuaded them to get on the planes. And they brought them to Israel. I, it, it, there's, there's so many amazing stories. I remember the pograms of uh, the Soviet Union. I remember the airlifts of the Ethiopian Jews. Um, these are all things. Never was any group of people so persecuted throughout human history as were the Jews. No other race. Absolutely. No other. Ab absolutely right. Um, it's been called the longest hatred. Uh, I also teach Holocaust studies at the University of Central Florida. And we don't start with the Nazis. We have to go back through history. Uh, Anti-Semitism, anti-Judaism is the longest, most systematic, broadest, deepest ethnic hatred in all of human history, bar none. And that's saying something, but it's absolutely true. And it goes on today. The, the thing about it today is that it often masquerades under the guise of anti-Israelism. So it's, it's not politically correct to, to call it anti-Semitism anymore. So we're, it, it, we're just against the state of Israel because, you see, they're, they're persecuting the Palestinians. This is the mantra that, that is, goes on and on and on. And like any good propaganda, it's repeated long enough and people just believe it, just believe it. Yeah. Uh, but that's how we find it today. Uh, and, and so much of it is, is from the left. Uh, we're accustomed to, to thinking of uh, radical right-wing skinheads who are anti-Semites. And yeah, we have those kind of folks who are out there, I, I, I am afraid to say. But so much of it today and across the world across Europe, especially, is from the left, and that's another that, that, reason why this peace agreement is so important. 
Well, see, that, that's something I've always asked ever since, you know, I became politically aware, and that was probably still in my crib. I've always asked, why did they vote Democrat if they, if they knew that the conservatives were pro-Zion? We, we were Zionists. We are Zionists. And there's nothing wrong in saying that I am a Zionist. There should be a nation for Israel. And, and, Absolutely. But, why, why do they constantly vote against themselves? <laughs> yeah, it's been said that the Jews today are in bed with the people who want to kill them. And in terms of, of the Western world, uh, that's uh, not incorrect to say um, uh, so much of the American Jewish community marches in lockstep with the radical left, the same radical left that hates and despises the Jewish state. Go figure that out. Um, but yep. it, it, goes back, it goes back in history, actually. It, 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 if you're interested, it's a bit of a history lesson, but I, I can't explain it. If if we go back into Europe in the oh, 1700s, 18th century, 19th century especially, there were lots of rumblings against monarchy, against totalitarian kings and queens who had ruled Europe for centuries. The French Revolution, there was a wave of revolutions in the middle of the 1800s across Europe. They failed, but they they wanted rights for common people that the monarchs had been denying them. Uh, the American Revolution was also an enlightened kind of revolution, though it was a little bit different. But still, we had in common with what was going on in Europe the fact that we hated monarchy. We hated tyrants. And uh, those who are patriots still hate tyranny, don't we? Uh, but in those days, that was considered classical liberalism. It was. The, the so-called right wing were the monarchists who, who favored centralized state power under kings and queens. So if you oppose that, like our patriot class did here in America, that meant you were a classical liberal. And so Jews in Europe who had been persecuted by Russian czars and by kings and queens and, and exiled and expelled all across Christian Europe, they aligned with classical liberalism, understandably. Many of them lined up with the Marxist revolution in Russia. If you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, you get a sense of that. But what happened over time is that the political poles shifted. And today, who believes in state control, centralized power? Not, not the right wing, but the left. <laughs> and who believes in real patriotism? What they call the right wing. So it's kind of reversed just in the way we call our nomenclature. But Jews, since they already, already call themselves liberal, classical liberal, they just stayed in the liberal camp and didn't realize things have changed. And, and if you're looking for the tyranny camp. today, you don't, you, you don't look for it where you used to look for it. Can't move. <laughs> you know, even if you go back to the founding of these United States, uh, several of our founding fathers, um, at one point, I believe it was William Bradford, uh, the pilgrim, uh, wanted to make Hebrew the language of the colonies. Um, there have been stories about Alexander Hamilton being raised as Jewish. Thomas Jefferson believed that some of the American natives were parts of the lost tribe. Uh, there were artifacts he found, I believe, in the Chicago area. 
that had Jewish symbols on it. You know, there is a history of Judaism and Christianity living side by side here in the United States. Yeah, it absolutely is. And going back to the founding, even before, even before the founding, the pilgrims, when they came, believed that this was the new Zion, as it were. This is going to be our city on a hill, our light unto the nations. And it, absolutely right. Uh, there were those who said we should adopt Hebrew as the, the language of the, the new world. So we have that and always have. George Washington um, visited the uh, famous synagogue up in New England and uh, addressed the congregation. President of the United States, our first president, and stood in front of this Jewish congregation. And, and he said, this land of ours will, will not be a land of intolerance. Let every, every man sit under his own vine and fig tree, quoting the prophets. Famous, famous event and statement by George Washington. And those are the kind of things that the United States always represented. And th- that uh, those of us who are still patriots, however many of us there are, still believe, including, including our president, who, who just, just yesterday announced that we need to teach our children properly in schools and end this, this leftist brainwashing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But your your book is fascinating because you lay out the um, argument for why the Israelites deserve Israel, and it is not a Palestinian land. And you go back to the original naming of an area that the Romans were controlling, not a specific country, but an area, uh, as vague as saying North America, labeled it Palestine to make it easier for them Mm -hmm. to rule but not to identify any specific person or a group of people. Exactly. The Jewish people have, as I mentioned, always wanted to live in their own land. They haven't desired any other land. They didn't desire to conquer Rome. They just wanted to live in their land. But when Rome conquered them, they wanted nothing but independence. Rome conquered the land of Israel in the year 66 BCE, before the Common Era, or BC, and immediately Jews wanted to throw them off and declare independence. It took them a few decades, but in the year 66 of the Common Era, a massive revolt against Rome broke out, and Rome put it down violently. There was an emperor in those days who was furious. His name was Nero. Everybody's heard of Nero. And he sent his best generals to crush this budding revolt, and they did. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. The great Jewish temple that stood in the heart of Jerusalem was burned, leveled to the ground. And to this day, the only thing that remains is the melancholy western wall of the retaining wall, the the artificial platform on which the temple was built. Temple is gone. Instead, in its place sits a Muslim shrine called the Dome of the Rock, the great golden dome. If you look at pictures, any photo of, of Jerusalem, you'll see the golden dome as the great landmark. That sits where the Jewish temple used to sit. Exactly. I've been in it many times. 
we can we can prove in fact that the the bedrock on which that shrine stands actual place where the ark of the covenant rested that's in my book as well <laughs> this can be proved yep. we even have we even have the grooves of the ark of the covenant where it rested so what happened the romans destroyed it and uh, arabs came in and and took it took it from the jewish people the romans for their part wanted to so obliterate every trace of jewish identity that not only did they destroy the city not only did they ban all jews from even entering the city except one day a year to mourn the temple not only that but they renamed the land itself they went back into ancient history we mentioned the philistines and they took that word philistine and played around and latinized it a little bit and from philistine they got palestina in latin and they called the land palestina or palestine it's a made-up land there, there never was a Palestine. It was invented artificially by the Roman emperors. And this was the same temple, if I remember my Bible correctly, that our Lord Jesus said that it would be torn down from the very rocks it stands upon. So, yeah. Well, as a, as a matter of fact, uh, there is a passage in the New Testament Gospel of Luke in, in which Jesus of Nazareth is quoted as saying that not one stone shall be left upon another that will not be torn down. Uh, th- there's all kind of, of scholarly discussion of this particular passage, and uh, I, I've written on this myself, as a matter of fact. Uh, there's a lot of Jewish scholarship now of the New Testament. Uh, one of my best friends and colleagues just on the phone with him today. He's an eminent um, Jewish professor out in California. And he is devoting himself now to Jesus research. He's an Orthodox Jew, but he's convinced that Jesus himself, the historical Jesus, was a, a real patriot for the Jewish people. So he and I do a lot of research together, and we, we discuss this, this very passage, this very verse uh, Jesus was making reference to this temple. He was there. He was there many times. Now, we don't have any of it left to this day, but we do have a great staircase on the southern end of the Temple Mount that has been excavated just in the last few decades. And if you want to come on a tour to Israel, whenever COVID leaves us, I'll bring you <laughs> to the exact staircase where where Jesus of Nazareth absolutely stood on multiple occasions where he was circumcised as an infant, where uh, his mother Mary went through ritual purification in a, an immersion bath. All of this has been uncovered. When, when I first went to Israel as a young student, all of this was covered up by a, a great grassy knoll. And only when the Israelis um, conquered East Jerusalem in 1967, was it possible to begin excavating such places? And over the last decades, all of this has been brought right down to first century pavement, and you just get goosebumps. It's an amazing archaeological park. But the thing is that technically, this is in Arab East Jerusalem. Uh 
so that that's mm-hmm. where my book comes into play. The subtitle is Archaeology Meets Geopolitics in Today's Middle East. Because what does the anti-Semitic leftist international community demand? That a state of Palestine not only be created, but that it embrace half of Jerusalem, including the Western Wall, the most important, the number one important holiest site in all of Judaism. And of course, this area archaeologically that we were just talking about all this is going to be in arab east jerusalem with with a a, a, like a wall through the middle of it they want to turn jerusalem into the berlin of the middle east and that's their plan for peace now watching history unfold and and as it circles around israel especially now a concentration of you know at jerusalem um, even the moving of our embassies to the true capital of Israel. Uh, and we're finding out other countries are beginning to follow suit to recognize Israel and the true capital. You know, I've, I asked this many times on the show, you know, what other nation in the world allows other countries to dictate where their capital sits? I've never heard of any other nation in the world kowtowing to international or globalist pressure to move their capital to something that's more pleasing to the left. But yet, you know, we demand this of Israel. Uh, but we're seeing the battle between the fight to create a Palestine, a country that never really truly existed, a people that never have existed, uh, into its reason to do that is the eventual complete destruction of Israel. Well, that is, in fact, what we'd be talking about without any question and it's what is demanded this this is not a peace process uh, benjamin netanyahu had it right when he called it a war process because that's what it is uh, the, the the country is so tiny people have no idea just how small it is when the state of israel was created by the united nations in 1947 that was the partition plan it became a state in 1948 but according to the original boundaries, Israel would be left with just a little sliver of territory along the Mediterranean coast between 9 and 11 miles wide. That's the state. That's the Jewish state. Now, the rest of the territory up to the Jordan River is still pretty doggone small. We're talking only about maybe 50 miles wide from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River. So you got another 40 miles or so that's the Arab state, the Palestinian state. This was all supposed to be the plan according to the United Nations partition plan. Well, how do you suppose the Jews reacted to the partition plan when the U.N. voted on it on November 29, 1947? Hey, we got 11 miles. What do you think their response was? Actually, they were dancing in the streets. They said, we'll, we'll take whatever you can give us. Because they knew that, that whatever they ended up with, they'd have to fight for. They accepted the partition plan. What about the Arab side? They rejected it. Lock, stock, and barrel. We don't want your state. Because that would also mean... A Jewish state, which we do not accept. So 
Israel fought a war of independence. It was, it was long. It was brutal. They lost 1% of their whole population in 1948 and 1949. What happened to this Palestinian state? Well, Jordan came in and annexed it. Was there any outcry among the world community against the Jordanians for annexing the territory that was supposed to be the Palestinian state? No. But from 1948 until 1967, the Jews had between 9 and 11 miles wide along the Mediterranean Sea. They, they did take West Jerusalem, though the east half was in Arab hands, including the Western Wall, including those steps that I told you about where Jesus of Nazareth was, was circumcised and, and, and baptized and where he walked many times. All this was in the Arab side. And between the two halves of the city was a big, ugly no man's land with, with minefields, literally landmines. Uh, a Baptist minister, a friend of mine, when I lived there, had been there for decades d- during the divided city. And he was trying one day to rescue a little Arab child who had somehow gotten on the wrong side of the city, rescue him back to, the, to East Jerusalem. And he stepped on a landmine and blew his leg off. And, and he walked with a prosthetic limb for the rest of his life. That's the reality of divided cities. That's what they want to bring back <laughs> to the Middle East. And, and, and yet Jews always recognized this is our capital. The rest of the world didn't. Even the United States couldn't until Donald Trump came along. But Israel wasted no time in moving its capital to the west side of Jerusalem, West Jerusalem, where, where they built their parliament building called the Knesset. Uh, very impressive. And now, since 1967, the city is united, and God willing, it will remain united. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, your book is fascinating. I have read it from cover to cover. And I found interesting as you went through some of these other towns within Israel, how you went through the background history and how um, the archaeology had proven time and time and time again that they were all Jewish cities, uh, many of them with vast, colorful histories. And I found some of the stories really absolutely fascinating um, as to the uh, burial chamber of Abraham. I love that story. I love that story. Um, The holiest site for the Jewish people is the wall, the Western Wall. It's incorrectly called the Wailing Wall, by the way. We call it the the Kotel in Hebrew, or the Western Wall. Second most important site is Hebron, or Hebron. This is where Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, the patriarchs and matriarchs were buried in caves underground. Abraham actually bought the site, we're told, in the Bible from the local Canaanites, paid for it. Of course, the Canaanites don't exist anymore, but Abraham laid a claim, a legal claim on this ancient site way back uh, thousands of years ago. And over time, uh, the Jews have not only honored it, but built a massive over it. It's a a massive building. Actually, it was built in the days of King Herod the Great that covers up those burial sites. And this, of course, was, was Jewish for centuries and centuries until, as I mentioned, the Romans 
conquered the land. And then the Arabs moved in. And Jews lost access to the second holiest site in Judaism. Couldn't even come to, to pray there. Sporadically down through the centuries, crusaders took charge of this area. And there were apocryphal stories about, well, maybe the the patriarchs and matriarchs are still buried down under there, but who knew the reality? And Jews occasionally were able to visit, but could Jews not at least live in Hebron? If if, if, uh, someone from Japan wants to come and buy some property in Hawaii, are they allowed to? Sure. I think half of Hawaii is owned by the Japanese. If you're a Jew and you want to live in Hebron, are you allowed to? Not until recently. Not until recently. Not until 1967 and, and the Six-Day War. And finally, uh, Jews were able to move back and began settling. They began buying up property. They, they, they weren't killing Arabs. They weren't ejecting Arabs. Uh, they, they simply would found, find houses that were for sale. And as Israelis, they would approach Arabs and say, well, you sell this to me and I'll pay you good money. And so a, a small community of Jews began to, to crop up in the city of Hebron. And of course, the international community and, and all of our leftists, as, as well as American leftists, by the way, shall, shall I name the Democrat Party? It was <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 supported by the Jews of America. Not all Jews, mind you. We, we don't want to exaggerate because uh, maybe 20% of, of the Jews uh, see the light and, and have not uh, thrown in with the, with the anti-Semitic Democrats, um, but 80% have. I, I, I cannot figure this out because their demand is that no Jews, no Jews can live in these territories conquered in the Six-Day War. This is to be the new state of Palestine, even though the Palestinians rejected it, which, which means – uh, and I mentioned this in my book as well, uh, th- that th- this new hypothetical Arab state is supposed to be Judenrein, and that is a German term developed by the Nazis, which meant free of Jews, literally clean of Jews. No Jews will live in the Third Reich, not one. And that is to be demanded of the new Palestinian state. No Jews, none. You want to live in Hebron? No. If you live there, if you, if you buy property in Hebron, now you're considered an illegal settler and condemned by international law. It is so sick and perverse, but that's what propaganda does, isn't it? And, and, but one of my favorite stories uh, is what happened not long after the city of Hebron was, was conquered in the Six-Day War, which was a defensive war, I should also add, because the Jordanians – uh, opened fire on the Israelis back in 1967. The Israelis said, stay out of this. But no, they opened cannon fire. So Israel came in and took those 40 miles up to the Jordan River, including Hebron. And uh, Jews immediately started to move in and, and settle there, buy some houses. And it, it wasn't long until it was decided uh, under a great Israeli general, Moshe Dayan, why, why don't we ex- do a little exploration uh, in the tomb of the patriarchs, this great ancient ancient sarcophagus, essentially. And they took a little Israeli girl. Her name was Michal. And they just she was just thin enough to be able to squeeze down between the stones underground. 
beneath the, the, the great mausoleum. And they sent her down there, and she began to explore those caves underground. And, and she actually produced a, a crude drawing of what those caves looked like uh, until they had to pull her out again. Uh, because, of course, uh, this, this was still uh, disputed territory. Oh, what a story. And then a few decades later, during the high holy days that we're talking about right now, there's a lot of prayer going on and the, the sound of the shofars blowing. And in the midst of all that commotion, because Jews were allowed at least to pray there, the, the, uh, an intrepid group of, of amateurs, archaeologists, went down again underneath and found themselves crawling through bones, literally, in those underground recesses, and pulled out some pottery fragments. They had to withdraw hastily uh, because the prayers were coming to an end, and they were afraid they would be discovered. Uh, But they actually found bones down there. Are these the bones of Abraham? Probably not, but it it bolsters the, the very real possibility that these were ancient Jewish burial sites, and who knows, maybe even Abraham himself to this day is down there. It's a fascinating book. Um, My co-host, Curtis, has finally joined us. He was off at a book signing or something or other. So, Curtis, uh, you said you had a question for Dr. Hansen. Ken, I I don't know if you can answer this, but what impact has the Dead Sea Scrolls had on the Hebrew faith versus Christianity? Well, um, actually, I wrote my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and have written a couple of books on them, and I'm preparing a uh, university course on them as well. So I, I happen to know a little bit about the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are entire a academic little. conferences on the scrolls that uh, I've participated in, and when we have academic conferences, it's an amazing thing because we have scholars of all faith backgrounds who come together with no agenda. Uh, What we do is we have material in front of us. In this case, we have ancient parchments. We can read their writing. And whether you're Christian, Jewish, there are Muslim scholars. There are are atheist scholars who are involved in all of this. But we don't sit and debate religion. We discuss what we can find out about the history of the time. Texts mean who wrote them, when they wrote them, how they fit into the, the cultural and the political situation of those days, also in the days of Jesus. That's when they were written. And John the Baptist and Herod the Great and the Romans and this budding revolt against the Roman Empire, all of this, it's a cauldron uh, of geopolitical turmoil going on in ancient times uh, exactly around the writing of these scrolls. They open to us a window on not just the politics and the culture, but on religious writings, we find all manner of almost mysterious links between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the writings of the New Testament. It's almost as if the Apostle Paul and other writers of the epistles are referring to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Even Jesus himself I'm convinced, this is something we scholars debate, but I'm convinced Jesus is making reference to the ancient sect who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, deliberate reference, and that he, by the way, didn't like them. (laughs) 
that's my opinion. I think he knew who these people were. I think they were an ancient sect known as the Essenes, uh, uh, who were written about by the, the ancient historian Josephus, the group called the Essenes, that Jesus knew who they were, but they were very cultic. If you can think of David Koresh and Waco, they were kind of like that 2,000 years ago. Jesus knew of the scrolls, he knew what they wrote, and he didn't like them. Because he, as an ancient rabbi, which is what he was, was out among the folks. He was out among the common people, which is what rabbis do to this day, incidentally. And he was doing exactly that. He says the answer is not to seclude ourselves and withdraw from society and wait for the end. You want to see the messianic age come about? Well, then make the world a worthy place, and then the Messiah will come. Like I said, it is a very, very fascinating book. And um, I've got unlucky 13. I've got 13 pages of notes I had printed out Uh, last night. It's not unlucky. 13 is a a very lucky number in Judaism. Uh, There are are how many commandments in the Hebrew Bible? Not 10, but 613. (laughs) 613. We love 13. Let's, Let's end the 13 phobia. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you you run the gamut in the, this book. I mean, you talk about not just the archaeology, but also about the geopolitical things that are going in. And one of the areas I highlighted, uh, you wrote, while it's clear through all this that the Jewish state has its extremists, is equally clear that Israel arrests its homegrown terrorists. Um, so Israel has always had battles within and nothing is new in today's day and age. The only difference that we see is that technology today lets the whole world see what is going on in this tiny little spit of land we call Israel. So, you know, no longer is it just internal politics. It all becomes part of geopolitics with Israel sitting in the center of it. Yeah, and Israel does have its share of bad guys within we're talking about Hebron and the tombs of the patriarchs. Uh, there was a radical, murderous Orthodox Jew who marched into that very location a couple decades ago and pulled out uh, an automatic rifle and began shooting dead Muslim worshipers because it's also a mosque and, and murdered uh, dozens of them. Absolutely horrific. Uh, he, he didn't survive. He was he was killed on the spot. But uh, that's the kind of, of mania we have among certain Israelis. I write in my book about several attempts and real plots to blow up the Dome of the Rock. Why? Because as we mentioned, it sits exactly where the ancient Jewish temple sits. Maybe if we just blow it up, we can rebuild our temple. Well, the, the attitude of, of Israel, including uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, is, you know, we, we have enough reasons to fight World War III without adding this to them. And so they were apprehended, they were stopped, and Israel it has its own internal security service called the Shin Bet, which is absolutely on top of bad guys within the state of Israel. Israel does want peace for peace. And, and as I mentioned, has, has lived in real harmony with, with Arabs, with Muslims for centuries, better than they did among the, the uh, Christian Europeans, by the way. 
so there is a dream of, of peace. It's not a religious conflict. It's a political one that has turned really anti-Semitic and evil in recent decades in, in the Arab world. And, and we want to we want to solve that. We want to solve that. And what, what about the Palestinians who live there now? Uh, well, indeed, they don't have citizenship of Israel. They don't have a state of their own. And the demand is that a Palestinian state be created. But uh, I have another idea, and so do a number of Israelis. Let's extend Israeli law and sovereignty over this state, this territory that they want to make Palestine. Let's make this Israel. And what about the Palestinian Arabs living there? Let them have citizenship. Give them full Israeli citizenship. You know, there are over a million Muslim Arabs who live in the state of Israel today, especially in places like Haifa, where they have an excellent relations, relationship with the, the Israeli Jews. They have full Israeli citizenship. They vote. They have representatives in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. Israel has no problem with this. It's a very – talk about diversity. It's a very diverse society. That's what needs to happen. Extend citizenship to this population and, and make it the state of Israel. Not a two-state solution, but remember, a one-state solution. That's what we need, a one-state solution. Well, what people don't realize is that under the PLO and um, Hezbollah that is ruling over these areas uh, that they call Palestine um, – they're not off as well as if they were living within the state of Israel because they have no representation. They are, they don't have exactly. good jobs or schools or hospitals. Uh, any aid that gets sent over gets taken by the hierarchy. It never goes down to the people. Uh, so have they had a hundred percent citizenship in the state of Israel, they would have the same privileges and advantages that any other Israeli citizen has. And I will note that just, I think it was last year, uh, that admission to the Kisnet, I can't even say the word, I I apologize, but admission, thank you, uh, was granted to a large segment of Christians that live in Israel. It's the first time that they actually started to participate in government. So Israel is allowing anyone and everyone now to fully participate in their government. And and there is a a lot of debate within Israel itself. Uh, Israel has its own left wing, by the way, who do in fact favor the creation of a Palestinian state, saying we've had enough of this conflict. We want to just separate from the Palestinian population. And they also claim that it would dilute the Jewish majority in the state of Israel if if these people are given full uh, Israeli citizenship. Well, to some extent it would. Uh, But bear in mind... Uh, the, the Jews have a three-quarter majority uh, as we speak in the state of Israel today. There's about a, a million uh, Arabs uh, uh, out, of a, out of a population of eight million. Um, so if these, these new Palestinians are given Israeli citizenship, and bear in mind, they don't have to take it. If you hate Israel so much, <laughs> don't take it. But, but if you want it, okay, it would, it, but it would bring that majority Jews would still have a majority, it would be about a two-thirds majority instead of three-fourths. So it would still be a Jewish state. And so I humbly disagree with those Israelis uh, who, who say we should have a two-state solution. It's complicated. There are endless debates, of course, in the state of Israel, but that's, that's its strength. Uh, Netanyahu says Israel is not what's wrong with the Middle East. 
that's what's right with the Middle East, because there's there's more discussion, more debate than you'll find anywhere. And yes, you're absolutely right, a much higher standard of living for the, the Palestinian Arabs than ever they experience in any of the surrounding Arab countries. Now, the book is, I said, very, very fascinating. It's called Whose Holy Land? Archaeology Meets Geopolitical, Geopolitics. I cannot talk today. In today's Middle East, um, Dr. Ken Hansen, and I, please, I'm recommending Please go it. to my website. Please go to my website, drkenhansen.com, where you'll find a link to the book, also to my YouTube channel. I have a whole YouTube channel uh, where I have full courses that I've developed uh, on video. They're like History Channel courses. They're absolutely professionally done. I have six full courses on the Jewish people and history and the Holocaust. Uh, it, it's incredible. All through my website where you can also buy the book. It's just Dr. Dr. D-R-K-E-N-H-A-N-S-O-N, all one word, drkenhansen.com. Well, there's a link on the show page here, so when people check this out in the archive or if they're listening now, they just can click on it and go to your website. Uh, matter of fact, you've just given me an opening for my next guest, uh, who happens to be a Holocaust survivor, Trudy Strobel, and her author, uh, Jody Sabin, that wrote about her experience and a lot of what you have touched upon, uh, because we were talking about the history of Judaism uh, throughout European and other histories, uh, people don't realize that uh, Jews were then singled out because of the, they were told, you have to wear this type of clothing. You know, very similar to what Hitler did, you know, wearing the Star of David. But, no, you have to wear this type of a hat or you can't wear that type of a lace. Um, They've always been singled out. And we've been written by authors throughout history. Uh, You have Ivanhoe, where he had his Jewish Rebecca. Um, Cervantes writes about, you know, the strain between Christianity and Judaism as well as Islam. Uh, So we've seen it. We have Shakespeare, um, Shylock Mm -hmm. in his plays. We've yep. seen it throughout our literature. Uh, we're just not being taught how much we our histories interweave each other. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it has been a pleasure speaking with you, and we welcome you back anytime. Terrific. Well, I'd love to be back. It's It's been a pleasure speaking with you as well. And always... Uh, hoping to share a little bit of enlightenment, Professor, that I am, and, and what a day to do this on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, the eve of the Jewish New Year all over the world. Uh, so just wish you a Shana Tova, a, a good Jewish year, and hope to see you further on down the line. Uh, absolutely, right, and have a very happy and blessed New Year, Dr. Ken. Thank you so much. Check him out. Uh, Dr. Ken Hansen, uh, and my computer just went a little nuts here. I don't know what the heck it just did. Anyway, um, let's bring in our next guest as, as I try to get this to click. Just bear with me because my computer screen just went a little funky here. Uh, our next guest, we have Jody Sabin, uh, who has authored a book along with Trudy Strobel. It's called, um, let me get this correct so I don't mess it up, Stitched and Sewn. Life-saving art of Holocaust survivor Trudy Strobel. I'm going to welcome Jody first. Good afternoon, Jody. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Shana Tova. Happy Jewish New Year. Uh, 
I'm not even going to try because I know I'm going to mess it up and I won't do that to you. Uh, but I have to apologize. My computer screen just went a little funky and I don't know why. Um, but anyway, uh, you have written this beautiful book. Uh, it is about our other guest, Trudy Strobel. So I want to welcome Trudy into the show. Good afternoon, Trudy. And how are you? And Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Shana Tova. <laughs> Good to hear your voice, and it's good to get acquainted. It is my pleasure, my pleasure. I just want to find out, how did the two of you uh, get together? How did Jody, first off, how did you find out about Trudy, and what made you want to work with her on this book? It's actually a very interesting and multi-generational story of women, how I met Trudy. But my young daughter was studying for her studying her Torah portion for her bat mitzvah, and she was studying issues of dehumanization and, and genocide, and so the sort of the, the factors that led the human psyche to be able to dehumanize the Jews and others in the Holocaust that were murdered, so that they could sort of park their conscience as they exterminated a race of people. And the L.A. Museum of the Holocaust, she reached out to them, and they introduced Maya to Trudy. Maya is my daughter. And so we went to meet Trudy. And, Trudy, you should tell about our very first meeting. Go ahead, well, Trudy. Yes. This, this, um, the um, director of the museum uh, told me that um, – this young girl, Maya, Maya Miller, uh, would like to, um, to, to remember a child that was murdered in the Holocaust. And I said, oh, yes, I, I can help with that. And so one day they did come over, and uh, her mother was with her, I think the family. And uh, she, I opened the door, and there is this beautiful girl holding a challah that she made and gave it to me. Well, at that moment, I could have just squeezed her to, to death, I guess that's what we say today. But I didn't touch her because I knew she, I would scare her. And so they came <laughs> in. <laughs> they came in and uh, um, uh, we started to talk. They asked questions about my life and they looked at some of my work. And uh, that's how I met this wonderful family that I cannot believe. Uh, it was like beshert. Uh, that means it's meant to be. And uh, so maybe uh, Jody would like to continue. Yeah, so, so we, we arrived at Trudy's with a challah, and a challah is the Jewish bread that we share on Friday nights for Shabbat. Um, tonight we share a round Jewish bread to symbolize the the eternity, eternal life, and I always like to think of it as the circle of life, which is a little bit Lion King. But um, but my, we arrived with a challah, and there we were in this home, and we were gobsmacked because we were surrounded by huge tapestries. I mean, the book, the 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 woman who shot and photographed the, the um, art in the book, did an, an amazing job. But unless you see this work in person, which I hope all of your listeners will be able to do one day, um, 
until that time, you cannot imagine the, the magnitude of this work. It's huge. And Trudy stitches single strand embroidery thread by single strand. So she takes um, a strand of embroidery, of embroidery thread, which actually is six threads woven, and she disassembles them. And so she can actually sculpt your face in thread. And she stitched, she spent 10 years on this masterpiece, this masterpiece of horror that, that she made called Final Destination, which depicts her experiences and the experience of all of the prisoners of the Holocaust. Anyway, we were looking at this work and, you know, Maya was like, we need to share this work with the public. We need to put on a show. I had no idea how to put on a show. So uh, we didn't know what to do at first. Maya, my daughter, actually wrote a short story, which got published and got a bunch of attention. And then I said, you know, Maya goes to high school, so she doesn't have time to write a book. I'm going to write a book. So I chose to write a book. And then Maya actually got a grant to travel Trudy's work from exhibition to exhibition. And so she assembled this series of exhibitions, which I really hope will be able to post-pandemic come to the neighborhoods of your listeners because it's an amazing exhibition. But that's how we all came together. And it took us, it took me quite a long time to pull all the strands of Trudy's story out of her, of, of her because it's a painful story. And so we, we say that we, we, she communicated to me in fits and spurts. And then eventually I was able to assemble all of the little threads, put them together, and then we would sit together and Trudy would fill in all the spaces. Well, in other words, with words, you created a new tapestry with Trudy. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. I hope the tapestry is as amazing as Trudy's are, but I don't know because her tapestries are incredible. Yeah, and you had them photographed. Anne Elliott is the one who did the photography. Um, Is this someone that you had worked with before? Because, you know, you are... I'm going to call you a Hollywood insider. You know, you've worked on screenplays and scripts and you also produce uh, along with your husband. Um, how did Anne Elliott get involved? So Anne um, is a professional photographer. If you look her up, it's annecutting.com. Her name is Anne Elliott Cutting. And she's quite an accomplished photographer. But I just, I approached her and I, our kids are friends. I approached her and said, I have this really important project that I'm determined to do. And would you have a look at the material and the project and come meet Trudy, come see the work. And the minute she walked into Trudy's house, she had the same sort of passionate commitment to this project that I did. So we then applied to, um, to get a grant from the Memorial Foundation for Jewish Culture because Trudy the most generous human being alive had given away a lot of her work. So much of it was in her house, but much of it had also been given away. She has over a hundred pieces of work. Um, So we needed the, the money from this grant allowed Anne and me to travel to the work that we couldn't ship into the studio to shoot. I mean, there was just, there was some hard cost involved. And so we were very lucky and we are very grateful to the Memorial Foundation for Jewish Culture, but that got us going and, um, and we were able to catalog and then photograph this work. And, and, um, and you've seen the book, Anne's photography is brilliant. So we are blessed. Oh, 
Absolutely. Now, Trudy, you have a very difficult story to tell, and I don't know how much you want to uh, divulge with us on air, because uh, I'm going to recommend people, if they really want to know the heart of the whole matter, is if they, they get the book and read it themselves. Uh, but your story actually spans the globe. There's no other way to ex- explain it. You start off in the Soviet Union, and your father uh, was, um, I'm trying to think of the proper word, the manager of the community that you had lived in. So you had a little more privilege and had a little bit more inside knowledge of what was going on politically around you. Um, But even in the Soviet Union, where they claimed everyone is a comrade and equal, uh, the Jewish population (laughs) was kept Yes, not everyone was was a comrade. (laughs) Right. I was born in a kolkhoz that is a um, state farm, and my father was the director of merchandise going in and out. And um, my dear parents, they expected a child, um, and they were hoping for a little girl. So on his trips, he saw a doll that he liked, and uh, he brought it home. And this was now um, before November. But in November, uh, he already heard from different sources, you're going to be next. Uh, So what they did, they gradually got rid of all the Jewish uh, um, uh, people that were uh, heading this kolkhoz. And uh, so he was going to be next. And this was in November of 37. And in uh, March of 38, I was born. And so after mother, when mother could, was able to travel, uh, because it's still very icy at that time. And uh, so she walked to Krivoyrok, which is the next town, a larger, larger town. (coughs) And uh, there was a men's prison. And she wanted to see uh, she stood in line, a long line of women and children uh, wanting to uh, see the father, grandfather, uncle, brother, whatever. And uh, so finally it came her turn. And uh, she says, I want to see Vasilya Laboon. And, well, he's no longer with us. Where is he? Uh, because I brought my little, ba- my little girl. He needs to see his little girl. And they, uh, where is he, uh, she asked. And he said, in Siberia. So my mother understood what had happened. This was her last program that she had witnessed. And uh, so she walked back to this kolkhoz where we lived. And uh, her, her uh, work changed very much. She then had to milk 10 cows at morning and night, keep them clean, and keep the stalls clean. And then, of course, I was this baby growing up. So this was in 38. In 42, the Nazis come in with horse-drawn wagons and uh, uh, motorcycles, trucks, uh, all different kinds of equipment. Of course, they all had their rifles and dogs and uh, told us, whatever you have, to wear, uh, to take along, and whatever food you have to take along. So mother was busy 
taking care of that, and all I was doing is holding on to my doll. And since my father had given this doll, it was my papa doll. It was everything that I owned from my father. And uh, so we were then gathered in this um, in this col- colony of of wagons and and wh- whatever you know trucks and and they were watching us and gradually we were taken to Lodz, um, uh Poland, which was a gathering place for uh, some of the Jews from nearby countries like Lithuania and, and, and so forth. And so we, we, as we got closer to, to Lodz, a Nazi Gestapo uh, seemed to like my doll because he came over and tore it away from me. And uh, I cried, and Mama said, Shah, don't cry, don't cry. She was so worried that I might be shot or something else, you know. And so I stopped crying, and uh, we arrived in Lodz, and were put into, into the uh, ghetto, the Jewish ghetto. And uh, so life continued with that. Jody, would you like to continue? And so what's what's important about this is because that doll, the, the seizing of that doll by the Nazi, was such a seminal moment in Trudy's life that it appears um, throughout her work. The taking of the doll, the dressing of the dolls. Um, Trudy's been haunted by, by dolls and the theft of dolls her whole life, um, you know, among other things. But... Um, but one thing that Trudy, one thing that's very important about Trudy's story is that her mother was a master seamstress, and stitching had saved their lives because her mother's stitching abilities were critical in wartime when there was no fabric for anybody to wear. So she could take a coat, disassemble it, turn the fabric inside out, and make it look new. She could repair almost anything. And so stitching saved their lives. They survived the Holocaust because Trudy's mother went to work as a stitcher, and Trudy remained as invisible as she possibly could by her mother's side. And so this theme, Annie, that you brought up about embroidery and stitching and embroidering Trudy's story, there are these amazing threads of Trudy's story because later in life, after Trudy, after they they survived the Holocaust, they survived the displacement camps and the continued anti-Semitism that they experienced while they were still trapped in Europe for many years before they got to the U.S. Um, Trudy's, Trudy's, um, Trudy's mother continued stitching, and Trudy got married, raised a family, but never talked about her experiences in the Holocaust, just disappeared them inside of her body. And then later in life, they came back, they came surging up, and they sent her into an almost catatonic depression. And she wouldn't talk. And the psychiatrist that they took her to was so frustrated, he didn't know what to do. And he said, well, if you won't talk to me, draw something. And instead, Trudy chose to stitch. And what happened, and there's a lot more pieces to the story, is Trudy stitched her way out of depression just as they had stitched their way to survival of the Holocaust. And so it's, it's an amazing story about art, the power of art, the healing powers of art. And it's also a testament to motherhood because Trudy's mother, who was probably 
a very simple woman who lived on a farm had extraordinary gifts of survival. And it is because of that, that courage of motherhood that both mother and daughter survived. And so this story just spoke to me on so many levels, and I thought I just have to write this book. Well, there's so many different threads that's in your, your story, and certain people end up helping along the way. It's like when your mother went to the prison to find out what was going on with your father, and your father had never even seen you. He just knew this baby, it's going to be a girl, because my wife is saying this is a girl. Now, your mother had several <laughs> prior pregnancies, and those children, those boys did not survive, but she knew she was carrying a girl and that you were going to be special. Yet your father never got to meet you, which is why that doll was so important to you, Trudy. That's correct. And uh, uh, actually, when I was uh, so deeply depressed and I saw a psychiatrist, uh, he, it took him a while for me to start to talk about my doll and so forth. And so he, he said, Trudy, wouldn't you like to dress a doll like your doll was dressed? And I had I had this picture, and suddenly something happened in my black mind, uh, a spark. Yes, th- that would be great. You know, suddenly I had this doll connection. I would want to do it. And uh, so I created this costume and actually bought a doll in order to do it. And... Uh, uh, and as I as I was putting on the badge, the, the Star of David, I asked the doctor, uh, "Why was it a Star of David that we had to wear?" And he didn't. He says, "I don't know, Trudy. You have to go to the to the uh, Federation, to the Jewish Library, and find out." You see, I didn't want to go anywhere. How clever he was! Now I know why he <laughs> did this. For me, it was great, great um, uh, discomfort to go somewhere and, and be with so many people. Uh, but as I researched that, I found out that there were 11 centuries of degradation against Jewish women. They had to wear either a badge or a different headdress or uh, the length of an apron or what, whatever, the coat. Everything had to be different, even two different kinds of shoes in Turkey. And so I, to myself, thought, I'm going to make 11, 11 dolls of 11 centuries of degradation. And it took a whole year to do this. Everything uh, was done so meticulously. And it took, it took a year of tears. Uh, you cannot believe how I cried, and I lived in each century. I, I, I just felt that this had to be done this way and this way. It, it, it was all so cumbersome. And so when I finished it, I took it to the, uh, the Holocaust Museum in Los Angeles. And this was in the Federation building. And to my uh, unbelievable surprise, and they wanted to show it, to, to display it in the museum. And I was so humbled because, you see, I was still in that, in that time frame of not being more than an ant. 
And uh, so I was humbled, and yet I was so pleased that this would happen, that somebody else would see these beautiful costumes. To me, they were beautiful, but they were nothing uh, nothing but despair when you think what they had to wear and what they had to go through through the centuries. And that's how then it started gradually. I, I've never had an art lesson. And uh, one day I come home from the doctor, and I decided to, to draw something like a flower on my table. And I thought, oh, well, I can do this. And sat down and uh, uh, with my thinking of Judaic history, uh, and I studied it uh, in, in many ways, many books I read. And um, I started to create tapestries of our Jewish history. And uh, so that's how it went. And then later on, I meet my beautiful Miller family. Uh, how would I have ever known? I, I would finish a piece. No one would see it. It was in my home. And uh, give it away. And, uh, but I continued stitching. And here I meet this wonderful Miller family who took me in their bosom, who, who, who worry about me, who, who take care of me. And I do have a son here. <laughs> but I'm so now relying on my Jody. What can I say? She is so vibrant and and uh, encouraging. She's just uh, uh, a gift to me. And so is my Maya. Maya started it all. So can you see how uh, how grateful I am that in I'm now in my 83rd year for all of this to have happened starting three years ago. It is incredible, just incredible. God always has a strange way of working if we only take time to listen. Curtis, you had a question for our guest? Yes. I'm so sorry for what you and your family and and other Jewish people had to go through in those times. It's just really a horrible thing. But my question is this. Um, about a decade or so ago, I watched a movie called Schindler's List, and I was wondering if you ever had a chance to watch it, and if you did, was the portrayal pretty much um, as you remembered it, the way you know the Germans treated people back then? Well, you see, all uh, camps are different. Uh, I was in a labor camp. That's why I, I am sure, that's why I stayed alive because of my mother's talent. I could stay with her. Thousands of, of children were millions of children were mur- murdered. And I could stay with her. And even to this day, I speak in the in the Holocaust Museum in Los Angeles and to schools. And one of the docents said, you know, I don't, I told him, I said, I don't know why I'm here. He said, Trudy, you're a gift to us. And so I've been taking it that way. I've been taking it this way uh, to contribute something to uh, the world and also to our Judaic uh, uh, branch of uh, religious uh, teaching. Wow. So, Judy, yes, gonna... so to, to finish that, uh, you asked about w- what it was different. Uh, it was very similar. There is fear, no food, 
cold, uh, verbal abuse. Rifles were used to push us. Drekige Juden, dirty Jews, go in there. And then when we came out, come out. Uh, life was full of fear. You turned your head a little bit to watch what what was happening. No, it 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 it, it can't be perhaps compared to the death camps that happened to the end. Suddenly they had to they were gone and and were poisoned or not poisoned but shot or so forth. I saw lots of shooting even in labor camps. But I could stay with my mother. That's the only gift that I can say that I'm, you know, that I survived and I was with my mother. But otherwise, life was what we call today hell. I don't know what hell is all about, but it was very, very bad. There's so many little tiny stories in there, um, little vignettes that actually affected how you and your mom were able to survive. And there was one very touching story uh, about when your mother found out that your father was most likely dead. She fainted and a woman came over to help her. And you later on, you, you and your mother ran into the same woman later on. Um, as she was leaving the prison to head back home, she heard someone singing and she followed the woman they ended up becoming best friends, even though the other woman was not Jewish, and helped you and your mom uh, to survive those horrible years. Well, uh, the, this uh, incident really was a lady that my mother would have trusted to keep me, to you know, to to stay alive. Getting as the as the Nazis were taking us out, but. Um, uh, but in those there days, many- when, when you first met, that, that was Stalin. Stalin was also on a rampage, killing Jews and Mennonites and all sorts of people. And so everybody in that Kohlhutz lived in a state of peril. I mean, Trudy's, the whole first part of Trudy's life, there was no, there was no situation where they weren't under the hand of a predatory and kind of insane government. So, so those two women were able to band together because they both had young children, but it's still Trudy's mother, thank, thank goodness, did not leave Trudy behind. She took Trudy with her because together they were able to survive. You imagine if her mother didn't have the mission to save her daughter, she might have given up at any point because they narrowly escaped extermination time and time again. Yeah, and it was because of her mother's talent with the needle and thread uh, that the Nazis realized, well, maybe she can be very helpful. And that talent with helping them mend their uniforms enabled them to survive. Right, Trudy? Right. Well, I'd like to speak about one incident. We were then uh, coming uh, to America. We were allowed to come. And we were told to go to Bremerhaven, that is a port in Germany, and we went on a ship called General Hahn. And as we, uh, it took about uh, six, six weeks or so to cross the Atlantic at the time. 
But there we had, it was a, a uh, army ship, and the beds were clean, and uh, mattresses <laughs> were good. Everything was American style. And the food smelled, uh, but the sea was so nervous, uh, really up and down, up and down, and uh, very few people could eat. They were uh, in a state of <laughs> of throwing up all the time. But as we came closer to New York, the uh, captain says, Statue of Liberty. And my dear friends, we all went up, and Mama, she cried, and she says, we're in America, we're in America. And you see, that was such an exhilarating feeling of love for this country that to this day, the newcomers, when they come, I have such feeling for these people because they don't come here to become wealthy. Wealth to them is to live somewhere to maybe even own a house eventually, to have your children go to school and to choose where you can go to school, to not be fearful somebody's there with a gun. And that's why I'm my feelings so go out to our newcomers and they are needed in our society. And that's my personal feeling, however. But you see... Being on that ship and seeing America and my mother hopeful for me to have a new life in America, how important that was to us. You know, that ship must have seemed like a castle to you because the living conditions that you had endured, even after the liberation from the ghettos and the camps, um, even right. then, uh, still were under horrendous conditions. And here you think the war is over, uh, we can go back to living a peaceful, calm life, but still the local people did not change their attitude, not in the least bit. You still had horrible conditions in which you had to survive. Well, yes, uh, uh, this was a, a small town, uh, a farm town in Bavaria, and uh, uh, there was a synagogue there that was burned down. But uh, we, as we came there, we knew nothing. We received a room, and a room to us, to ourselves, without hundreds of people where we slept. How it was a totally different experience. And Mama sewed for people, and I started to go to school. I was now eight years old. And um, uh, as we fall in line to go to a classroom, uh, I hear in the background, Yuda, dirty Jew. And you see, then I was already uh, two years older, but uh, no one associated with me. I had no girlfriend. And later on, when I became so depressed, my doctor told me it's because I kept everything inside all these years that uh, that led to my deep dep- depression, as you know, as uh, as as I had to go through it, but uh, the town actually, uh, I was surprised that Mama. Well, not surprised. Mama uh, talked to various farmers, and this was a time of no material in Germany, 
everything was bombed out, which uh, uh, that's why we were dispersed all over the place. Uh, But um, she did uh, find work, then finally everyone in Bavaria has a wool coat. And so she offered to to turn the coat around for them, and uh, which uh, which they were pleased about, and uh, sometimes we'd even get a little bit of extra food. And you know, the, the government gave us a little bit of of uh, money to live <laughs> to live. You can't live with that. And food stamps, but you know, it was never enough. That's why Mama had to continue to work for us to even have a living. I went to school and was with her after school, and I learned so many things. There were bubbies all over, you know, wherever we were in each farm, and they did something else. Some uh, some grandmother would be uh, would be spinning wool. Now that was fascination to me to suddenly create a strand from a from a ball of of uh, sheep hair Uh, it's wondrous and I learned how to knit all these different things through the five years I lived there that were uh, necessary for me to be able to complete some of my costumes and also my embroideries so everything worked if you're ambitious and interested uh, it never hurts to work with your hands. Uh, mental mental uh, uh, ability is the most important thing in life, but I sort of just worked with my hands all my life. <laughs> but Trudy well, is an amazing you're... researcher also, because, you know, Trudy, after, after depicting her experiences in the Holocaust in these huge tapestries, Trudy then segued into depicting the history of the Jewish people in thread. And before Trudy embarks upon any new tapestry, she does an incredible amount of research. So without a lot of formal education, Trudy is truly one of the greatest intellectuals I've ever met. Oh, oh wow. I'm looking over my notes and I see that uh, Trudy, you started uh, making the costumes for these dolls. You were 48 years old. Uh, that was 35 years ago. We didn't have the internet we have now, so which meant you had to do your research old school by going to the libraries. And how, how did you even try to start the the uh, research? Well, this, this happened through uh, the uh, study of the badges through the 11th centuries of degradation, where I then uh, touched on other books and I read other historical books and thereby I gained the knowledge as to um, especially the Sephardic costume uh, are so beautiful with lots of gold and beads and they were they were a joy for me to create they are they were wedding they are wedding costumes and uh, that a woman would get from the father when she was married. And then the skirt would go around and be tied at the back or front. Uh, it was an open skirt. And that was done because of, you know, one child after another came. So they wouldn't have to uh, continuously make a new skirt. So it, it uh, the um, uh, Yemenite bride is one of the most 
uh, adorned costumes that you would ever see uh, anywhere on earth. It's so beautiful. And uh, the headdress that she wears. And, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's fascinating once you start to study this. Yeah, I, I was looking at some of the tapestries in the book, and um, you have where you also, the history you have in some of these tapestries uh, goes over the centuries. You, some of them have a single incident, but others you, you span centuries, and you link other historical figures into these tapestries. Um, which one do you think is the most important of all of your work that people should be truly paying attention to? Well, uh, because we have so many Holocaust deniers and really a very small population in the world knows about the Holocaust, I think it is my uh, Holocaust piece and perhaps my latest piece, Jerusalem, which I love. And all others are instructive historical pieces. When you read all the captions on everything that I embroidered, and uh, the history I write with it, you learn history. Judy, um, when you were putting this book together, you said you were getting bits and pieces of the story from Trudy. Um, how long did it take you to put the whole book together? Well, it was a long process. I don't know if there is a concrete starting point. So I've been asked that question a lot of times, but it's always, it's like two or three years because when I first met Trudy, when we first, both Trudy and Maya tend to be very quiet people. Although Trudy talks a lot now, there were years where Trudy barely spoke at all. And when I first met Trudy, she was pretty quiet. So she would tell me a little bit and then that was that. And so, and I didn't want to press because it was excruciating. So like it, it was, a, you know, it took over two years to assemble, yeah. you know, the, even just the story part of the book. And then the other part of the book, you know, trying to track down all the pieces and getting permission to shoot them. That took a long time too. And then of course we needed to find a publisher and I had never, I mean, I, I've spent my entire career in the movie business, so I really didn't know anything about book publishing. And so we sort of floundered around, we got a couple offers, and we were very worried that the publisher would not um, put together a beautiful book. And because the tapestries are so incredibly powerful, and they're just these, um, these sort of masterpieces of art, we couldn't have a book that did, wasn't also really attractive. So when we, when we were able to get in touch with Prospect Park Publishers and we realized the kind of, like, they do really gorgeous work, we were so lucky to have this publisher. And um, they, you know, we, Trudy and I are so happy with the job that they did on the book. Because you think, oh, you write a book, you put the book, there is a whole process of assembling, especially a book that communicates this art this level of artwork and where the art is a companion to the story because you can't tell Trudy's story without also viewing her art. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at uh, the one that uh, you've titled Russia, 1942. Uh, it's the moment when the SS officer took Papa doll from you and your mother holding on to you, trying to protect you as best as possible. And it's not, it's, you can 
focus on that part of the tapestry, but what you add in is everything that's going on around you at the same time to other people and weaving in your love of your faith. And it's so intricate, so very intricate. Yes. yes. Well, uh, you see, I would include that with my, uh, with my uh, very large Holocaust piece because they really go together. Uh, you know, that is my experience of, um, of what happened to us. It's amazing the way you're able to capture the expression on the faces using a needle and thread. You know, I've, I've seen some beautiful tapestry work, but the way you catch the actual emotions is phenomenal. You are a very, very talented woman. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. To do portraiture and thread, it never ceases to blow my mind. <laughs> no, and it is, it's a history that a lot of people are not talking about. As Trudy, you say, there are Holocaust deniers. But unless you, you see your work, you hear your story, I ask a person, how can you deny that this is what you lived through? Um, I had a friend of mine when I was going to high school I did not know that his mother uh, survived Auschwitz until he brought her to class one day and we got to see her tattoo and hear her story firsthand. And it turns out the history teacher that allowed her to come speak to the class was an American uh, soldier that helped liberate these camps. So the stories are out there. It's a matter of getting them out to other people to hear and listen. And I guess, uh, Jody, that's what you want to do uh, with these shows, with these displays. Yeah, that, that yes, that's exactly the mission that my that that inspired my daughter to put the series together. I mean, Trudy's son yesterday sent me an article from USA Today, and the headline is "Almost Two Thirds of Millennials Gen Z Don't Know That Six Million Jews Were Killed in the Holocaust." This was this was on September sixteenth, twenty twenty. They did this survey. It's shocking. Now, they'd rather rewrite history with the 1619 Project rather than tell the truth about what our world has been doing. Uh, but stories like this do have to get out. You know, the book is absolutely fascinating. Uh, it, it's hard to read. I'm going to be honest about that because you, you read the stories and you can't help feel the pain uh, in some way and ask, how can I fellow human do this to another human being? And that's an answer that we have never received. Right. Jody? No, no, absolutely. And it's a real, it's a current dilemma too, because we live in a very divided world. And, you know, it's a slippery slope from division to, you know, this kind of, I mean, just racism, xenophobia, just these really ugly currents that lead to genocide. It's just, it's, it's a slippery slope. I mean, we still have genocides. We have genocides in our world right now. Yeah, we do. And, and no one is really paying much attention. And um, we hear about Black Lives Matter movement, but no one's paying attention to the fact that there's over 8 million black slaves in Africa and the Middle East. And if you want to do a battle, why don't we take a look at that as a battle to fight? 
but we've got to get the truth out that we are capable of doing this to each other. So we've got to learn from what has happened in the past to prevent it from occurring again in the future. And it's a very powerful yeah. story, Trudy. Well, yes, and we're all uh, lucky that Trudy's here to tell the story herself, in her own words, what she actually witnessed firsthand. It's the talent of Jody, how she put it together. Uh, she's a marvelous writer, and as you felt, you felt the story as you were reading, and that's how I read it, the same way. She feels me. She actually feels me, this woman. I don't know how she does it, but she does. I think that um, her life should be made into a motion picture, and that will help keep, you know, the memory alive of what happened back then. Because, like like Annie said, they are just rewriting history. And um, the Holocaust is one of the things that they're writing out or diminishing, you know, downplaying. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. Jody, well, the perfect person to talk to about that, right? <laughs> yes, from a book to a movie. But, well, <laughs> for the moment, we do oh, have yeah. the movie, and, you know, if, if you or if any of your listeners want, you know, more information about Trudy, Trudy does have a website, which is trudystrobel.com, T-R-U-D-I-E-S-T-R-O-B-E-L. And there's links to all sorts of other information. And Trudy and I often do web discussions. And when the, when the world allows us to congregate once again, the show will go back um, to travel, hopefully, to, you know, to the East Coast is the next plan. First, it's going to go up in another venue in Orange County where it's on hold right now. And then on Trudy's website, and, and there, is a, there is a website, for, a dedicated website for the, the exhibit also called alifeintapestry.com. And that will, uh, would allow all of your listeners to know where the show will go up next because it's breathtaking to see her work. Oh, wow. That is absolutely awesome. Uh, Trudy, are you going to be able to travel with the exhibit or you're not able to? Well, uh, I'm I'm still able. Uh, there are periods where I had a vertical problem and I needed my cane not to fall, <laughs> but uh, that has vanished again, and I seem to be strong. I, sometimes I wondered, like I told this this uh, wonderful uh, docent, I said, I don't know why I'm here alive, and uh, and yet you know new ideas come in, and I. And I do this piece or that piece again. And uh, as long as I have these feelings that I can create more, uh, then I am strong. And to travel, yes, I can travel. I think I could sit in a plane just like I sit at home in my chair. Because <laughs> <And laughs> I, I sit a lot, my dear friends, and I have to get up periodically <laughs> to get exercise. So I saw a doctor, and he, he said, you can exercise right from your chair. And what you do is lift up each leg, the knee, and bring it up as high as you can, then the other one. And then move your arms and turn your head, you know. And, of course, all these things are done in normal exercising. But 
uh, it helps me to do it in my chair so I don't have to get up every uh, every <laughs> hour. You should do it every half hour. But I sit there sometimes for hours, which is not good. And yet, when you start to do this work, you have to continue. There is something that is burning in your brain, and no one can take it out. I do this all to myself. No one is telling me do this in the faster or this faster. No, no. It's I have to finish this. I have got to do this. And uh, that's how these things get done. Self-determination. One of the things I noticed throughout the book is that um, your your ability and your mother's ability to survive was because you both had a purpose. Um you now have a whole new purpose, which, you know, I, I'm saying again, I'm going to say God has been driving you forward to this, this point in this place in this time. And I honestly think he has given you a purpose to fulfill. I think, uh, I don't know. I, perhaps you're right. I don't know. But uh, this puzzlement in my life just continues. And as long as I produce, I think it's all good. Well, it is somewhat miraculous that one day Trudy could pick up a needle and thread and draw with amazing verisimilitude. She could draw what she saw in her head in thread without any formal education at all. So it is a miraculous gift. And she had stories that had to be told. And all of these tapestries are a gift to future generations because Trudy won't be with us forever, and either will will the rest of the Holocaust survivors, but we need to know their stories because they are a cautionary tale of the slippery slope of intolerance. You're so right. Very, very amazing story, and we're glad that you are here today to tell it. And I can't tell you how wish... But had I known you as a child, I would have been able to grab you and give you the hugs that you always wanted. But I'm sending you one long distance. I'm sending you a hug from South Carolina. Just to let you know we my take prayers and love. <laughs> are, you, are you from North Carolina? No, I'm in Is South Carolina. You oh, you're from South Carolina. Well, that's just well, as actually, good. <laughs> well, actually, I'm originally from New York. <laughs> so. Oh, I, great, great. I got here like <laughs> I, I ran away from New York. <laughs> you definitely have a New York accent, and you have a nine one seven number. <laughs> yeah. Oh man! But you know, it's a fascinating book. I'm telling people they've got to go to your website, uh, Jody, and uh, get the book, uh, which is through Prospect Press. Uh, it's called. Um, Stitches and Sewn, Life-Saving Art of Holocaust Survivor Trudy Strobel. And I look forward to uh, looking at your other website, Trudy, your website, and looking at the other tapestries on it. Unfortunately, I don't have enough space on the description to the show page to include it. They only allow me so many characters. And I, don't, I guess I don't have enough character for the show description. Uh, well, anybody, if mo- anybody just Googles Trudy T-R-U-D-I-E, Strobel, S-T-R-O-B-E-L. It will take um, them to Trudy's website, and Trudy's website is linked to my author website and to the website for the exhibition. Everything's up on Trudy's website. And also on Trudy's website, we've put up a coupon. So if any of your listeners want to buy the book 
they can obviously buy it from Amazon and Barnes and Noble and their local bookshop. But if they want to buy it directly from the publisher, there is a 20% discount coupon on the website. Oh, awesome. Then what I'll do later on after I get off the air is change the link from your website, Jody, to Trudy's. Uh, that way they can go directly to that and use the coupon too. Yeah, that would be great. And I can even send oh. you a link to the publisher's website. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, I do believe you have my email. Otherwise, uh, it's very easy. It's the name of the show uh, just at uh, what the heck am I? At hotmail.com. <laughs> Southern Sense at hotmail.com. Uh, people can reach me there. A fascinating story. And Jody, I'm looking forward to you putting this together in a uh, manuscript and starting a movie. I, I think this will okay, be Okay, I'm on it. <laughs> <laughs> Get a hold I of that. I can see Academy Vegas. Awards. Academy Awards. <laughs> Yeah, okay, get, thank get you. We'll accept it before we even do the project. <laughs> <laughs> Jody, uh, David, thank you for joining us. Trudy, thank you for uh, sharing your story with us and your magnificent artwork. It, it, you are a godsend. She you, know, is. I, you are all You're all so kind. I thank you so much. All your kind words. I'm humbled by your interest and uh, positive thinking. But, you know, when Jody uh, talked to me about writing a book, and I said, and then what? Well, when you talk about a film, and then what? I would never understand it. (laughs) Well, you'll be standing there on the stage getting the Academy Award with her. (laughs) How's that? (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you so much, Annie. Thank you so much. And we wish you all a happy, a happy and much healthier new year. (laughs) Same with you. Happy, happy Jewish new year tonight. Uh, Be safe and God bless. All right. Jody Sabin, check her out as well as Trudy Strobel. Uh, Absolutely fascinating book. And I enjoyed reading it. And I'll probably go and get the hard copy to add to my bookshelf. Um, Curtis, we've got just about 30 minutes left on the clock. Um, I did not do the dedication to a fallen hero at the start of the show uh, because our schedule got all turned upside down, and we started the show off with Mm -hmm. Catherine uh, Orca. So we're going to go forward uh, with any highlights of the day as well as doing our dedication at the end of the show. And I'm sorry you didn't uh, join us with uh, Catherine Gorka. I'm going to have to yeah. see if I can get her to get her husband on air with us, uh, Sebastian Gorka. Um, but she is a very fascinating woman also. Uh, anyway, um, let me get my act together here. Just bear with me for a second here. Now I got. I have to tell you that uh, my computer got messed up, so what else is new? So things moved around on me, and I'm trying to find where I put everything. As usual, everything is upside down, backwards, and inside out. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, well, uh, I was I, I was late today because originally, you know, well, I am scheduled for an event tomorrow here in Polk County, um, a place called Winter Haven, and I was going to come Saturday and um, leave Sunday, but then I remember I had made a commitment to my book cover editor up in Jacksonville, Florida, to spend the day with him to, um, you know, work on my new book cover um, to, I think it's my fifth um, political um, thriller. 
and it's entitled Truth versus the Democrat Party. So I had to re, you know, rearrange my schedule come today, um, so I can do the event and go home after the event tomorrow. So that is why I was a little late because Winter Haven is like two and a half hours from where I live. So I made it. Um, I think I missed like what forty five minutes though of the show, but I'll listen to the podcast later. <laughs> yes. Um I have to apologize. Uh printed this out so tiny. I have a hard time even just trying to read this thing. <laughs> oh wow. This is gonna be fun. What is it's, notes? Uh, the de- yeah, my notes for the dedication. Oh, the dedication. It's so tiny. Honestly, I don't even know if I can read this. Holy cow. Well, I'll do the best I can. Um, today's show, uh, the dedication is going to go out to police officer Christopher Ryan Walsh of the Springfield Police Department in Missouri. His end of watch was Monday, March 16th of this year. And uh, this is from, I can't even read what it's from. I wish I had a magnifying glass. Uh, K-I-R-O-7, Channel 7, out of Springfield, Missouri. And it starts off, a Missouri police officer shot and killed as he tried to stop a mass murderer, a mass shooter, who killed three others inside a convenience store, is being lauded for his bravery. Springfield police officer Christopher Ryan Walsh, 32, was among four people gunned down by Joaquin S. Roman, According to authorities, the other victims killed that come and go were Troy D. Rapp, 57, Shannon R. Perkins, 46, and Matthew J. Hicks Morris, 22, all of Springfield. In essence, we have a roving actor shooter moving from the south side of the city up, and we think up in Ingram Mill and over Highway 65 and then to Chestnut where it ended at the come-and-go in Springfield, Police Chief Paul Williams said during a morning news conference. Romans crashed his vehicle at the store and got out. He walked into the building and opened fire. Rapp was an employee at the store, and Perkins was a worker with the WCA Waste Corp. Hicks Morris was a customer in the store. Police officials said that no motive for the shooting has been determined. Roman had no prior criminal record that investigators were aware of. We do not yet have a motive, but figuring out those details is a priority in the investigation, said Springfield Police Department spokesperson. Jasmine, detectives believe Roman acted alone in the shooting, with the newspaper described as the deadliest in recent southwest Missouri history. Walsh and fellow officer Joshua Overton were the first police officers to arrive at the scene. Both were struck by the gunfire. The police chief struggled to hold back tears as he announced Walsh's death and Overton's injuries, which were not life-threatening. Both of these officers showed significant bravery. They were heroic in their actions, and we ask that you respect their family's privacy at this time, Williams said. Overton and a fourth victim who was critically injured inside the store were hospitalized for treatment. Williams said Overton 
is a two-year veteran of the Springfield Police Department. Walsh, who was on the force for more than three years, was a U.S. Army veteran who was active in the Army Reserves. He survived by his wife, Sherry Walsh, and their young daughter. Chris was a model of the quiet courage and sincere humility that his nation, community, and family are blessed to have and saddened to lose, obituary said. During his 14 years of honorable service to his nation, Chris served in two active deployments to a combat zone, which he received a combat action badge and other decorations for his selfless service. Williams' description and police scanner traffic archived at Broadcastify.com offer a vivid picture of the intense 15 minutes of bloodshed that left Walsh and three victims inside the store and the gunman dead. The first call about gunfire came in around 11.24 p.m. from the area of Battlefield Road and Lone Pine Avenue, about five miles from the convenience store. A 911 dispatcher tells officers in the audio that the shots came from a moving vehicle. The caller described it as a gold Pontiac Grand Prix. As far as we know, nothing was hit and no one was injured at this time that we are aware of, a male dispatcher says. Additional callers told dispatchers it appeared a black sedan may have been involved and that the occupants of that car and the Grand Prix may have been shooting at one another. Officers can be heard on the radio discussing both vehicles as they search for the shooter. Officers could also be heard setting up a perimeter and trying to get canines to the scene to track the shooter. After several minutes, dispatchers received calls about gunfire at two more locations. They just received now multiple calls for shots in the area of 2120 South Ingram Mill, the Woodgate Apartments as well, a dispatcher says had several shots that just occurred. Moments later, dispatchers received calls from the area of Sunshine Street and US-65, where witnesses said the driver of a car was shooting at people. The vehicle was shooting out of a window, going southbound at 65 and exited at Sunshine for a small dark-colored two-door car, dispatcher says. I believe that's going to be our suspect vehicle. No one was injured in either of these shootings. A few moments later, officers and dispatchers can be heard discussing a possible sighting of the suspect vehicle on East Chestnut Expressway. Watch Springfield Police Chief Paul Williams gave a statement about the shooting. Courtesy of the news leader, it reads, Around 11.43 p.m., a call came about Roman crashing his vehicle at the come and go located at 2885 East Chestnut Expressway, Williams said. Shots are being fired right now, a female dispatcher says in the audio. Sounds like someone has been shot. We're starting the medical that way. Multiple officers are heard informing the dispatcher that they are en route. Sirens can be heard as they race towards the convenience store. A male dispatcher tells officers the caller reporting the convenience store shooting can still hear gunshots coming from inside the store. Walsh and Overton were fired upon immediately after they arrived, Williams said. 224, I have been shot, one of the officers shouts into his radio. 
Clear, 224 has been shot. The female dispatcher responds in a tight voice. Springfield Mayor Ken McClure, on behalf of the Springfield City Council and the entire community, expresses deepest sympathy to the family of Officer Chris Walsh and three citizens who lost their lives in this census shooting occurring overnight, reads a Twitter post from the city of Springfield. We are indebted and very grateful for our officers who exhibit extreme bravery for our protection. Officer Walsh made the ultimate sacrifice. Our community mourns his loss. It continues. An emergency tone can be heard on the radio. A few moments later, the dispatcher tries to get status from the officer, but there is no response. Clear. Shots fired at 224 at 2885 East Chestnut Expressway. Come and go. One officer shot, the dispatcher announces. Multiple additional officers, including those working in the perimeter, are routed to the scene. More sirens can be heard screaming towards the convenience store. Paramedics are also dispatched immediately. Get an entry team started now, an officer tells the dispatcher breathlessly. Shields, everything. A few minutes later, the entry team arrives and pulls the wounded officers to safety. Someone asks if the shooter had been contained. No, a male officer responds. It's still active, a female officer adds. Clear, still an active shooting, the dispatcher responds. A few moments later, another officer describes the scene. A shooter's still inside. It's active, he says. We need somebody in the back. We got an officer down. Two officers respond. They are in the back but say the door is locked and they cannot get inside. An officer can be heard saying the shooter is inside the store, an unknown location. He seems to describe the man as wearing a camouflage jacket. The radio goes quiet for several seconds before an officer gives an update. Advise everybody arriving on the scene. The shooter is shooting out the window, the officer says. An officer was shot from inside the store outside. Take cover behind vehicles. A dispatcher relays the information to officers approaching the store. Another officer comes on the radio and says they need an entry team. We need units with a shield and somebody going in. We don't know how many victims we have, an officer says. Officer with shields prepared to enter the store as colleagues set up a staging area a couple of blocks away. All approaching backup units are told to report there because of the scene. It's not yet secure. I'm ready to go, an officer outside the store says. Another says she and a third officer are on the west side with a shield. The entry team went inside to find Roman dead from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. The dispatcher announces the shooter appears to be down. Springfield advising, shooter's down, the officer says. An officer states over the radio that the wounded officer, Overton, was alert and conscious and on the way from the scene. Walsh died at the hospital. Today's show is dedicated to police officer Christopher Ryan Walsh. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate this show to all the brave men and women that serve in our military, from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. We dedicate to them 
This song by Todd Allen Harrington, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one.
All right, and we're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR, Movie the Lone Star, Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Speaker, YouTube, WCETFM, Adam, Columbia, South Carolina, and half a dozen other places I forget. Oh, Curtis, just tell them, just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and you can find it <laughs> every Friday. Uh, anyway, um, holy cow, we got like only about 15 minutes left to the end of the show. Uh, this whole thing has gone so fast, Curtis, and uh, you're definitely going to have to listen to the star of the show with uh, uh, Catherine uh, Gorka, Sebastian Gorka's wife. She is she is a powerhouse in her own right, and I told her I'd love to be the fly on their wall when they get into a discussion, because these are two <laughs> fantastic and uh, they both have worked in the Trump administration, uh, so, you know, it's so much fun to have her on. She's now with the Heritage Foundation. Um but we have a blockbuster lined up next week. Um, we have oh, yeah. Alex, Alex Scarlatos, uh running for Congress in um, Oregon. And we know him. He was one of the three National Guardsmen in Paris on the 1517 train that stopped the mass shooting. Uh, they, they took, remember that story a couple of years back? The three U.S. Oh, servicemen yeah. that Oh, yeah. The Clint Eastwood the- made a movie about it. Right. So he's running for Congress out of Oregon. Uh, he'll be joining us. Uh, then we have your friend, our friend, Ted Yoho. Uncle Ted will be with us, Congressman Yoho. Oh, yeah. And then we're going to have constitutional attorney, Timothy Dave. And then we're going to yeah. end up uh, with our friend, Daphne Barak, and her husband, Bill Ganetsky. They have a new documentary coming out called Trump versus Hollywood. And what they do in this one is they sit down with a bunch of people and they discuss uh, different sides of the story, one side and then the other side, to get more of a, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the proper word, but we'll be talking to her about this new film that they're going to be coming out with this documentary, Trump versus Hollywood. So we've got a lot coming on and a lot on our plate. And my goodness, what did we have forty-seven days, forty-six, forty-seven days before November third? I think so. Before the Babylon Revolution? Holy cow! Yeah, I have no doubt yep. Trump's going to win that day. The the problem is, how are they going to cheat after that day with all these ballots and stuff going out? I don't trust now, them. Now, I heard what there were eight eight million. Ballots were mailed out to uh, voters, people that are on the voting rolls. Does it mean that these people are still valid voters or if it's going to a house That's right. that they still live? Um, I, I know here in South Carolina, a friend of mine, she's been going through the voting rolls here in our own county. And I think she said she had over a thousand of people that were deceased but still remained on the voters, voters registration mm-hmm. as active voters. That's in our county. Yeah, they haven't. Alone. They haven't reconciled their uh, their paperwork yet. Apparently. No, and some of these people, it's not as if they died yesterday. Some of them had died years ago, so they should have been purged yeah. a long time ago, or not. And see, mm-hmm. another thing is that the left is out there with what they want to do, and and most of these ballots they're trying to say, well, it doesn't have to be signed, and this and that and the other. You know, it's just outright cheating, you know, because they know they can't win, you know, fighting fair. They always have to um, go guerrilla warfare on us. So hopefully we'll get some um, 
some input from the Supreme Court because there are a couple of cases out there, I understand. But I hope it's soon because they need to put a, a, a halt to all this. Well, you got to remember, John Roberts is still sitting on the Supreme Court. And we know how he yeah. gets the vote lately. Yeah. So it yeah. may not go. John Roberts is the, the fly in the ointment. Oh, but here, this, this I love. This came to light in the news the last couple of days. Guess which political party is getting huge amounts of donations from, catch this, unemployed individuals, uh, people with no jobs. And they're getting this tremendous amount of influx of money from these anonymous donors. Something like between 65 to 67% of the donations are coming from unemployed individuals to Act Blue. And, oh, gee, Act Blue? Uh, isn't that going into uh, Joe Biden's campaign? But on the Trump side, it's more like only 6 or 7%. Not even 10%, but you've got 65 to 67 on the Democrat side. Do you think there's some cheating going on in there? Do you think someone's funneling money legally? Oh, hmm. yeah. And overtly. Well, it, I mean, Bloomberg, I heard he was going to commit 100. What was it, 100 million to Biden in Florida? Just one state. He's already sunk. That's how I believe they one. Are. I, I believe Bloomberg. It's he already sunk one billion into his own failed one hundred day campaign for president. He lasted one hundred <laughs> one hundred days. He spent a billion dollars. So what's ahead, a billion Bloomberg. to him? Chump change. <laughs> keep on spending it. Keep on spending it, and then when you end up broke, then I'll be laughing all the way to the bank. <laughs> But anyway, but it, it, it begs to question just how much campaign finance reform have they done in the past. Uh, it looks like there is a huge loophole. If Act Blue can get that high amount of numbers from anonymous or uh, unemployed um, donate, donations, it, it says there may be a problem with this campaign finance reform. Maybe they didn't really reform anything. They just opened up loopholes that they can exploit. True. My only solace comes from the fact that we do have Trump. You know, he's like a chess master. He's always way ahead of these other guys who are against him. And we also have um, um, Barr, you know. I mean, hopefully he'll, he'll start acting, you know, constitutionally to block some of this stuff, you know as far as it being unconstitutional, what they're trying to do. So that, like I said, that's the only comfort that I have right now. Well, um, Sasquatch put in um, in the chat room that he was amazed that all these unemployment people have all this money hanging around. Uh, it's not so strange when you think back to when Hillary Clinton was running for Senate in the state of New York. This seemed to have been coming out of Chinatown a huge number of donations, surprisingly, a large number of donations that exceeded the actual population of the Chinese segment of New York City. Uh, a lot of these donations, it turned out, got funneled through this guy named Lee, uh, was coming out of actually communist China. 
going into Hillary Clinton's war chest. Now, I do believe he ended up getting convicted of uh, campaign um, uh, illegal campaign contributions or something to that effect. Uh, he did time, but he was the sacrificial lamb. Hillary Clinton was never prosecuted for that. Uh, but it was a curious number of large donations and coming out of families that were at the poverty level, where they traced back some of these alleged names these donations were attached to. And there was no way these individuals had that type of funds. So, oh, no. Yeah. yeah like oh, I said, no. they always cheat. They always cheat. What, what is it with this mayor I keep hearing about lately who um, kept his low numbers of uh, coronavirus um, death, you know, out of the public domain? And it came out in some kind of report or something. And now he's got to eat crow and answer for this. I can't remember what mayor this was. If anybody mm. in the chat room I'm knows, the- please type it. Yeah, I missed that. I missed that report. Um, yeah. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Oh, anyway, um, running down to the last end of the show, uh, I want to thank everyone for joining us. It looks like Facebook is acting up again. Oh, God, that's really driving me crazy. Anyway, um, and right now, YouTube is not letting us do a live stream anymore because we don't have enough followers on YouTube. So go over to my YouTube channel and follow me. <laughs> Start building those mm. numbers up so they can put the, the video up there. Anyway, uh, but Facebook every once in a while disconnects us. Uh, so I don't know if it's happening on just my end or everyone else's, but we'll figure it out. Um, anyway, um, as I said, oh, you know, uh, we've got also, we're actually got our shows booked up straight through October 5th. I've got people already booked on October 5th. It's great. I love the fact that, you know, wow. we're getting back up again. Um, but if anyone wants to know, um, if you're looking at the video of me, why I look like I'm a little haggard, uh, my husband is still in the hospital. Um, he was supposed to have his surgery, not this Thursday, it was past a week ago, Thursday. And they called us, had us come in early, but because of certain blood levels he had, um, they had to postpone it until the following day. And while I was on air, he was under, he was in surgery and the hospital was texting me uh, updates about what was going on. And he was in there in surgery for almost five hours straight. And the doctor said they threw everything at him that was in the uh, operating theater. He said there was not an instrument we did not use. Uh, But thankfully they were able to save his leg so he's got a brand new hip, but he will be in the hospital for another week. Um, so hopefully he'll be coming home next week. Uh, he's doing fine. Uh, last I saw him, they were giving him a transfusion because his blood levels are still off and a little odd. Mm. But uh, keep those cards and letters coming. But uh, I think that's almost everything I've got here, Curtis, unless you've got something left for the last uh, five minutes here. Well... If you're in the area of um, New Smyrna Beach, Florida, on Monday, you can come hear me speak. I'll be speaking before um, the Republican Club. Uh, Tomorrow's too late for y'all to come to um, New Haven. But anyway, enjoy the weekend. (laughs) 
all I think that's just about all I got. We may end up ending the show just a few minutes early, uh, if people don't mind, because um, I do have to get back over to the hospital. And right now, I'm on my last few ounces of energy. <laughs> so <laughs> I got to give wow. you just about all I got. Not much left. Um, but in that, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to end the show with Big Don. I think I think uh, a tribute to Donald. A tribute to Donald Trump on the end of the show. I think that would be a lot of fun. So uh, this is a uh, parody, Big Don. Uh, so sit back, enjoy, and I hope it amuses you. If I can get it to play, come on. I mean, these things can drive me nuts. Anyway, mm-hmm. and it, it, it's not going to play. You, it's not. You son of a bee. It's not going to play. Oh man, that sucks. I don't know why. Um, ever since my computer crashed and I've had to switch, switch computer terminals around, some of my programs are not just working. So, sorry about that, guys. Anyway, um, oh well, let's see what else we have here that I can end the show with. Uh, oh. Now it's telling me I got a party. Do you have that um, Tea Party song by, by Lord? Party song. Um, yeah, by Lord, I can't remember his last name. He just died this year. Great song. Oh, Lloyd Marcus? Mm. Yeah. No, but what I, what I am going to do is play a WCET radio promotion. So let's play this one, and then we'll end the show. Late-nighters and all those who listen to WCET radio. Listen up. The shop is here, and you can order WCET merch right now to show your friends and your neighbors you're awake by wearing one of our many shirts, including our Stop the Censorship shirt. That one is a hot seller, so get yours while supplies last. We have coffee mugs, clocks, so you always know what time it is, books, mouse pads, all your WCET accessories. Just go to WCETFM.com and click the shop tab. That's WCETFM.com and get the shopping. All right. Well, that's all the show we have for today. I want to thank everyone for joining us that were listening in over here on Blog Talk Radio and Star Daily News up at WCET Radio, where you can find it at WCETFM.com, as well as over on Facebook. So I want to thank everyone for joining us. And we will be back here next Friday, same bet time, same bet. And for those out there, have a very happy and blessed Rosh Hashanah. Until then, I say good night and God bless.